1: Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me, but I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is based. based, and patriotic. Earth water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good. Trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? Who doesn't? If so, Check out the Earth Water link on my homepage, Seven Cents. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, seven cents.com. Who doesn't want to make some easy money? You'll earn a 10% commission on what you sell, and they even set up a web page for you to sell from. How easier can that be? Every time a customer returns to your page and buys, boom! You just earned an easy 10% commission. Sign up now. Buy at least a case. And let me know what you think just by going to my webpage. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-cents.com. They offer four tiers for affiliates, from one case to 16 cases. I bought four cases to start, and boy, am I hooked on the water. Simply go to my webpage. Click on the Earth Water link on the page and join Team Earth Water. Go to Southern Sense and become a member of my site, and you'll also be entered to win the latest book offer if you become a member of my site. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Check it out. I know you'll be pleased. All right. You're here listening live to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio at HR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, through YouTube, Facebook. You know what I'm going to say. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in middle, southern com. I'm your host, just with the most interesting radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, the epic debonair and erodized <laughs> co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis.
2: Hey, I'm delighted to be back again today another great series of interviews with some very interesting people.
1: Oh, we, we've got ourselves a fantastic lineup, a very, very great lineup. Uh, we've got John Milkovich, who is the Louisiana State Senator that wrote the book, Robert Mueller, Errand Boy of the New World Order. And with what is going on with the Mueller report and the investigation, the Pfizer uh, falsified warrants, and, oh, Lisa Struck and uh, uh, Lisa, no, Lisa Page and Peterson. Yeah, I wonder I why I couldn't figure out the guy's name. <laughs> I mean, it is one yeah. thing after another. And it turns out it goes straight up to John McCain and his aides with the Steele dossier. Oh, man, that uh, McCain's aide may have helped to write the Steele dossier. There is so much to talk about that we're going to go into with him. Uh, then we're also going to have Gary Williams, He wrote a fantastic book out, and I swear, I got to certain points in the book, and I was just bawling like a little baby. I was crying so hard. Uh, It is a great book. It's called Guardian of Guadalcanal, the only Coast Guard member to ever receive the Medal of Honor uh, who was killed at Guadalcanal. And um, I'm thinking about it. I'm getting ready to cry. (laughs) It is a fantastic, very touching story. And you know what? Since 1942, no one wrote a story about this hero. There's no movies, no story. You hear about Audie Murphy. You hear about so many others uh, in World War II that were uh, unbelievable, brave uh, men and women out there. But you never heard about this one kid. And we're going to be doing a full hour, possibly an hour and a half with him. And then we're going to end up the show with a dear friend of mine, I love him. He's a huge teddy bear and actually our protector whenever we go to the (laughs) T-Park convention. Known him for about nine years, Jim Simpson. And whenever someone talks about the red-green axis, he is the gentleman that wrote the book, the red-green axis. So we'll be talking to him because there is so much going on with the illegal aliens, sanctuary cities, uh, Ilhan Omar, the infiltration of Muslim Brotherhood here in the United States. And now we have the terrorist bombings over in, not uh, terrorist bombings, the terrorist attacks over in uh, New Zealand today. Oh, man, it's just one thing after another, after another. And as Friday is, it is is the day we get hit with all the stuff. So instead of doing our normal dedication at the front of the show, our show is dedicated to the gentleman that Gary Williams wrote about. So today's dedication, later on, as we talk about his book, that will be the dedication. It is to Signalman First Class Douglas A. Monroe of the U.S. Coast Guard killed on September 27, 1942, at Guadalcanal. And as I said, he's the only United States Coast Guard Medal of Honor recipient. And uh, that segment will be the dedication. So moving right along, like I said, we have so much to talk about, and I didn't make up a list. I just pulled out a whole mess of printouts, and we're just going to go through them, Curtis. You know, we also have the uh, college scandal, too. And you know, you've got oh, yeah. kids, Curtis. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I've talked about it often that when I went to college, I had to work two jobs. There was no easy path. My parents weren't rich. There was no scholarships or, or anything like that for me, and uh, the grant, the Pell Grant, my brother had already used it. And one little known thing, you know, if you're in a certain income bracket, you're only allowed one grant per household, and my brother used that up. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, I graduated college before he did, and we went to the same college, and he's four years older than me. (laughs) You just
2: wow. <laughs> well, fortunately oh, okay. yeah, my children is- went through my children went through, and um at a time where they were able to to work, you know they got jobs on the side to augment you know their financial um situation there, but um, they all graduated, and whatever loans they had, I believe they paid them off by now. And, um, you know, they didn't have to cheat. I didn't have to, um, you know, get anybody important that I know to make it easy for them to enter college. They went to good colleges. Um, My two sons went to UF, um, University of Florida, which everybody knows is associated with the Gators. And my daughter went to Temple University in um, Philadelphia. So people can do, you know college without cheating and um, it's just sad that we have people who feel like they need to use their power and influence to uh, get the you know get the jump on their children getting in
1: well you know the funny thing is is I started college just at the time affirmative action was being put into place so a lot of that wasn't available to me I even tried to play the woman card And they said, oh, no, at this point, we're favoring Hispanic and black women over white women. They said that to my face. So, you know, when they talk about affirmative action, you know, I'm the product of being on the reverse side of it, you know, not having the money, not having the resources. And then having, like I said, working two jobs at times, three for a couple of weeks just to pay for my tuition. I didn't take out any loans. I paid everything as I went. I didn't want the burden of the loans. And even back then, it was pretty hard to get a student loan. We didn't have these huge government programs that they have now in place. So, you know, when I I see what's going on with these kids and the world of privilege they come through, and as um, Tyrus was talking on Fox News just now, you know, if you look at what Hollywood produces and the movies and shows they produce, you know, they encourage this behavior. You know, one show was about, you know, getting preschool kids smuggled into the elite preschools. You know, if the kids weren't wow. qualified, they'd find different ways to bribe to get the kids in. And this has been going on for a very, very long time, and it's finally been exposed for what it is. You know, you've got one set of standards for one part of the country and another set of standards for another. You know, the, the people that are are these elitists, these Hollywood elitists, these corporate elitists, you know, and I guarantee, I'd say 75% of them are all Democrats. <laughs> I guarantee when you yeah. look at them. But, you know, <laughs> this, this is the world of privilege. If you can't buy it, it's not worth it.
2: And see, I was never a proponent of um, affirmative action. And for that reason. I kind of had to take a second look at Colin Powell because uh, he believed in that. And um, I just, I just think everybody should be judged on their own merit. And, you know, I think the playing field should be level for everyone, but I don't think anyone should get special treatment just based on race or sex or, or whatever, you know,
1: it should be meritocracy, plain and simple meritocracy. And now they have this humongous lawsuits that are coming out. I think one of them is like half a billion dollars. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, they they do nothing for the whole situation because now you have these probably hundred thousand kids that are, jump off this class action lawsuit thinking they're going to get a payout, and all they're going to get is their entrance fees, which in some cases is like seventy dollars, thirty five dollars. No big. Yeah. It, it 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 takes away from the actual. Crimes that are being committed Everyone thinks this is a pot of gold now Let's launch these class action lawsuits mm-hmm. Instead of proving that they've Actually been hurt Prove to me that you've been actually hurt By this situation Show me the very instance Show me the paperwork Show me the proof And then put a lawsuit These are fabulous lawsuits They just think they got a pot of gold And you know who makes out? The lawyers
2: Oh yeah, the lawyers make out
1: They automatically, they, give, they, they automatically they get, get
2: millions get of One people. third off the top yeah, they get millions of yep. people to sign on to this, and whatever's whatever's granted has to be divided by those millions. So you might walk away with fifty bucks. <laughs>
3: <laughs> if oh, a
2: two million dollar settlement. You know, uh,
3: someone
1: someone said time. something to my husband some twenty some odd years ago. Someone said something to my husband, you know, because uh, he had uh, worked with asbestos. So they, this is when they first started the mesothelioma. Oh, yeah. So he said, yeah, all right. Yeah, I was in an, in an industry where I was exposed to, you know, this. And they said, do you want to jump onto this class action lawsuit?
3: Class action. He said, action.
1: sure, why not? Do you know what the payout was? It was $35. Yep. <laughs> $30. And <laughs> see, I had experience
2: lawsuit. like that. I had experience like that with Pontiac, um, something about the brake system. And I went through all this trouble with, collecting all my receipts and stuff where I had break work done over the years and sent them in. And when it was all said and done, I think I got like $11. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't believe it. I mean, I'm thinking I'm going to get like seven, 800 bucks, $11. And the lawyers well, made out. So like there's gonna a,
1: well, there's going to be a major overhaul of these university systems, the entrance systems, there's going to have to be more transparency. Um, it's going to be a lot more. I, I, it's going to end up with more government regulation, the end results. You and I know that. The government is just going to expand because they want the oversight. Instead of having the market do the oversight, Saying, all right, fine, these schools have proven to be bad on the entrance, so let's put our kids in a different school. Better yet, ever since the 70s, They've been training kids to think that as soon as they enter school, their goal is college. Their ultimate goal is higher education, not looking for a, um, uh, what do you call it, a career, something that you may enjoy doing, whether it is music, plumbing, electricity, car electronics, whatever. Yeah, vocational. Going towards a technical field, maybe or going to a different type of vocation that doesn't require college. You know, they're they're training these kids to think college. And what's it doing? College is all a tremendous profit. They see the bottom line, they see the Benjamins. And the more kids they can get in, and the more money they can get from them, the better they are. But instead of getting kids out there to do something that they'll be happy with for the rest of their lives, no. Let's go into college. Let's push them into college.
2: Not only that, Andy, uh, the value of a a college degree goes down. The more, you know, you get these people into it that are being um, fed easy courses and things like that. And uh, I can see why, you know, these folks want their children to go to a more prestigious college because that has more value. Curtis. I right,
1: we we got a little bit of Curtis, we got a little bit of a change up. Can you call John now? Because his travel plans just shifted. I just got a text from his agent. He wants us to bring him on early. So if you mind okay. uh if you can give him a call and let's bring him on. And while that you do that, I'm gonna to talk to the people in the chat room and thanks, Cal. That is very, very nice of you. I can't stand my laugh, <laughs> she says I she loves my laugh. It's very melodic. Oh man. Wanna welcome everyone that's up in uh the chat room and it looks like Chief has put up an article about the lawyers, which I was talking about. You know, it is a goldmine for these lawyers. They see something like this coming and they say, Ooh, wow, why don't we just jump in on this and say, hey, we automatically get half or maybe a third and you've got a multi billion dollar lawsuit? Hmm, that is Quite a bit of money to plow into our law firm. And, uh, uh, of course, Chief put in an excellent article uh, written called A Good Start from July 2002, and this was at QMCUSSMWorldPress.com. Uh, I don't see who the author is, but uh, this is something I've been talking about, the cost of torts. If you want to bring down the cost of uh, health to tort reform? Absolutely, Chief. I do believe in this. As a matter of fact, I wrote extensively on that when it came out with Obamacare. And if anyone goes to my blog, which is beaufortteaparty.blogspot.com, or you can link up to it on my page, which is southern-sense.com, you can read my blog. Go back to, I believe it was October, August or October of 2009, And I wrote the unconstitutional points. I wrote 15 things to do uh, to repair health care. So, yeah, check that out. Tort reform is a huge thing in any field. Um, You can can actually bring down the cost if you reduce the tort reform, if you control it. Because there's so many frivolous lawsuits out there if you think about it. And if you make the plaintiff responsible, if the judge tosses that to carry the cost for themselves and for the other sides. But conversely, if the case is taken and it goes forward, then the plaintiff should be reimbursed in the end when they win the court. Uh, So there's a lot of things we can do if if we're more uh, judicious on what cases we allow to go forward and throw out these silly, silly ones. If you remember a number of years ago a woman sued McDonald's because she spilled hot coffee on her lap? Hello, lady, what part of hot coffee don't you understand? And it's your fault you spilt it on your own lap, not McDonald's, but McDonald's ended up having to pay. There's a lot, a lot of, you know, frivolous lawsuits out there. Let's clean up the courts. We've such a big backlog in the courts. Let's look at these frivolous lawsuits. Let's pass laws that, hey, listen, if you file a frivolous lawsuit and it costs the other person, Mm, there may be civil penalties, too, on top of you reimbursing the other side. There's a lot that we can do there. So Curtis is calling John Milkovich and trying to bring him on early. And uh, like I said, we've got a lot to talk about, especially with going on with Robert Moeller. Oh, one thing I want to mention, uh, uh, because uh, we've got that huge bomb cyclone going on in the Midwest heading over to the East Coast. and Airports are being shut down or flights are being shut down. Something like 3,100 flights as of last night had been canceled or delayed. At the same time, we've got these uh, planes, these Boeing planes, that are also being grounded. So you've got 3,100 coming in the Midwest, and you've got now a whole big bunch of them being grounded. And airlines are rerouting flights. They're they're changing the equipment. They're delaying them. They're canceling some Bringing others over. Uh, this is going to be a huge nightmare. I'm going to tell you probably for the next week or two the unraveling of these flight snarls. And you haven't heard anything in the news yet about what's going on at the airports, but I'm telling you, watch the news because you're going to see this happening uh, quite soon. Let's bring on our guest who's running for a plane. Louisiana State Senator John it's it. Good afternoon, hey,
4: afternoon. John. Welcome hey, back. Hey, Annie, uh, listen, I'm on board. So as soon as my audio gets bad, you pull me and put someone more famous on.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is perfect timing
1: because we've got everything that's going on with Park talk And you've written the book, Robert Mueller, Erin Boy of the New World Order, and now you've got uh, – Senate and Congress pushing to have report issued and a release to the public, but yet it hasn't even gone to be a presidential yet
3: to be
4: approved. This is crazy, isn't it? Well, and I I think it's a possibility that release and everything to everyone may be in the best interests of the nation and the president, because we all know how much money they spent thirty million. I'm reminded of that daily. Or, well, at least weekly, and they've had, uh, what is it, 21 months to try to get their act together, and they've been browbeaten, threatening, and intimidating witnesses. Let's see how good of a case they've really been able to put together that the president colluded with the Russians to rig the 2016 presidential election. I mean, it's, just, it's a travesty. They don't have any evidence, and if they have to publish their pathetic, no. exiguous reports, then it just shows the whole world that – this was, a, this was a scam from, from Jump. Well, you know, it
1: even goes up into the office of John McCain now. Now they're finding out that one of his aides, this guy Kramer, actually worked with helping build the Steele dossier. And he's the one that turned around and brought it back, you know, at, which was paid for by the Clinton campaign. So now you've got a falsified dossier, and it involves Clinton and McCain which is based upon why they got the FISA warrant. So they falsified information for a FISA warrant. Now, if I remember my law, and as I sat in the police academy, they throw this into here, you, you're going to lose your case if you bring in evidence that's proof of the poison fake. And Trump just recently tweeted that everything should be thrown out because of the falsified FISA warrant. And he is legally correct. The whole thing should be tossed
4: out. That's right, if we're abiding by the Constitution, by the way, I think I need to call and ask you questions. You really do it you're You're a smart young lady, and you're doing your homework so um next time we're going to switch, I'm going to ask questions. You give the answers <laughs>
1: but i I got a question for you now, the FISA report hasn't been released yet. And yet, uh, Amazon is already advertising the Mueller report online. And they've got, I counted at last, 12 different books being released on or around March 26th, all about the Mueller report. One of them with an Alan Bershwitz uh, introduction. The other one was Washington Post-Horresponding Part of the But how do they have that
4: if they
3: haven't stopped reporting it?
4: Well, what you just said is impossible because we all know that Robert Mueller is never guilty of media leaks. So it's like the CNN being there to videotape Roger Stone's arrest. It was actually a technical impossibility because, if you listen to many in the mainstream media, Robert Mueller never leaks to the media. So this is another impossibility. I just can't believe that it's happening, that Amazon knows already. Well, I counted as
1: of a couple of days about 12 books out there uh, One of them was actually released back in December And now how they can do that I have no idea But, you know, here we're, we're talking about The dossier And the Pfizer reports and everything else And lo and behold Who lied in front of Congress About Pfizer and NSA Spying on Americans And, and
3: there's not Pfizer warrants Going out there
1: James Clapper, Admiral Clapper lied before Congress, and no one went after him, but the statute of limitations have gone past, so we can't touch him. And everyone said Obama didn't know, but we find out two weeks before Trump's inauguration,
3: he him.
4: gave him information told Obama about Well,
3: <laughs>
4: Listen, your analysis is right. Straight arrow on the money, Annie. Uh, you, you're just absolutely dead on. Arrow's accurate on this, and it, it's a, I think a reflection of the fact that this was a scam from Jump. Robert Mueller has a career that we talk about in our book of 30 years of cover-ups from Whitey Bulger killing people and being protected by the FBI and FBI agents being implicated, indicted, in prison for murder and. Mueller being the U.S. acting U.S. attorney and never said a word about it, never did anything. Pan Am 103, he covered up the the actual perpetrators of that Pan Am 103 bombing got away with Mueller in charge of the investigation. He targeted a couple of scapegoats that had nothing to do with it. Uh, BCCI sweep the evidence under the rug for George Bush 41 so that the billionaire banksters that are financing uh, drug trafficking, terrorism, and illegal arms sales get off. 9-11 flying the Saudis and the Bin Ladens out of America so they couldn't be questioned, even though we now know that they were bankrolling the hijackers months, if not a year or more, before 9-11. I mean, it's just one scam after another for Mueller. So at this point, number one, whatever he says that's allegedly damaging to the president, he is entitled to no credibility. And there are many scores of millions of Americans that aren't going to believe a word he says. And as they find out more about his his the biopic of his career uh, he's his he becomes less credible every day so I mean that's um, I'm almost saying release the report because you know some people thought it's really going to hurt the president for Michael Cohen to testify you boil it down at the end of the day he says I'm in the middle of trump operations if there was a conspiracy to rig the presidential election there's no way he could have missed it and he said I didn't see it so I mean his actual testimony when you boil it down is a a proof that the president was not involved in a conspiracy to rig the election. I think his, it, Mueller's reports will be more of the same: scanning allegations with no weight, no evidence, no proof, no, no Russian collusion.
1: Well, I don't know how anyone can get Michael Cohen to testify against the president since he's already convicted of perjury. How do you get a perjured felon to then come forward and testify well, and then believe his testimony?
4: Well, and 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 I and I get that point too, but I think uh, I'm pointing to another larger point, which because you're such a brain, you'll you'll be able to get this instantaneously. He was there. Okay, Annie. They're saying I'm going to have to go off air. I hope we get to talk again because you're so smart, and I learn something every time I talk to you. <laughs> well, travel safe, John, and we welcome you back anytime. Hey, keep saving America, young lady.
3: <laughs>
4: Thanks, John. God bless.
1: John Milkovich, check, out, check him out. Uh, John Milkovich for Senate, as well as his book over up on Amazon, Robert Mueller, Aaron Boyce for the New World Order. Oh, man. <laughs> Love that guy, Curtis. Busy guy. And believe I it or have not, a Democrat.
2: He, <laughs> I should have asked him where he was off to. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh,
1: man. Now i got to pull back the other stuff I was talking about. And, you know, they were talking about the, the planes that are being grounded. And uh, Kel is asking that it had to do something with the autopilot. And that's what we believe because the crash that happened uh, less than six months before, uh, the same exact thing happened. It was at the time of takeoff. The uh, plane started to osculate, oscillate, and then it took a nosedive. And the pilots basically both called in about the same time as this was happening, both of them in a panic voice, both of them asking to return to the airport they just took off with right after takeoff. So, you know, two of them within five months. Uh, one, fine. Two, I don't believe in coincidences, especially when you have something this this similar. So, well, uh, I'm glad my that understanding. They, uh, Trump... Well, go ahead.
2: My understanding is that Um, some of these guys might not have been thoroughly trained to fly these planes, and um, they're going to look into that aspect of um, the crash, because, I mean, the the planes have performed, you know, superbly elsewhere, you know, but once again, you know, whoever flies it has to be, you know, familiar with it and um, have the hours and training, you know, to do it safely and and you know, consistently. So they're gonna look into that to see how well the people were trained is, and how you know well yeah, it was that, maintained.
1: Yeah, that that is one thing that they are actually looking into because here in the United States it's one of the most stringent requirements for you know commercial flight and pilots. You have to have X oh, yeah. amount of hours, you have to continuous. Now, as I understand it, the co-pilot had only something like 200 hours on this plane, but the pilot had, I think, something like well over 2,000 hours. Except if you, <laughs> excuse me. If you have a pilot that experienced and the plane still crashes, then something's wrong. Something else is wrong. You know, it may be slight human error, but I, I, I'm willing to bet it's going to come back to the autopilot because pilots and there's, they were saying that. For the last year or so, American pilots have been complaining about the autopilot. There was numerous complaints about it. And uh, they're looking into that also. The fact that there was complaints made, multiple, and no one did any research into this. No one said, let's temporarily ground them before there is a crash. That's going to be part of the investigation also.
2: And that's true, because uh, in most planes like that, after a point, Um, computers run, you know, fly the plane, not the pilots.
1: Well, maybe that's something that uh, they better look into, maybe having the pilots more hands-on than computer.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I would like to, you know, know that the the pilot is in charge and not somebody like 3,000 miles away at a console program the thing. Yeah.
1: Now, I'm an American Airlines Advantage member. I have been since, oh, good Lord, I think like 1978 or 1980 or something like that. And they sent me an email, and the email reads, Yesterday, the Federal Aviation Administration temporarily grounded all Boeing 737 MAX aircraft, including the 24 MAX aircraft operated by American. Now, I have flights scheduled for June, and yesterday... I get an email message that they have changed my flights and i noticed they changed the equipment on the flight so i'm wondering if they <laughs> i would have been on one of those um, teams throughout the airline have been working tirelessly to minimize the impact to you our customers we appreciate your patience and understanding with us during this busy travel season and we apologize for the inconvenience of this cause american is working in close coordination with the department of transportation faa National Transportation Safety Board, and other regulatory authorities, in addition to our union leaders and Boeing, to closely monitor the accident investigation into the crash of Ethiopia Airlines Flight 302. America regularly monitors aircraft performance and safety parameter data across our entire fleet, which is operated and maintained by a highly experienced and well-trained team, according to American's exemplary safety record well this is just to make you feel you know safe uh, but you know the american Air, american united states airlines are more closely monitored than any other in the world and we have the greatest safety records but it's funny because china already pulled the maxes off long before we did and i'm glad american only has 24 of them considering the number of flights they have so you know rescheduling flights and using alternate equipment is no big strain for them But if you have an airline like Southwest that's only been in business a few years, their fleet is mostly the 737 Maxes, So it's going to be a huge, huge strain on them. And our next guest, Gary, is calling in at 4 o'clock, so we've got like another 20 minutes uh, to go. And um, it's funny. uh, Kel and I were in a chat room uh, yesterday, and I'm looking for the article, the uh, leader of the, one of the co-founders of the Southern Poverty Law Center. um, What is his name? What is it? Uh, Last name is Dees, D-E-E-S, was fired from his job. It turns out... uh, there was some sexual harassment complaints against him, but there was also a large number of complaints against the Southern Poverty Law Center from conservative groups um about you know them, you know, putting stuff up on the Southern Poverty. You know, Ben Carson, you know, he was listed as a hate monger. Uh, thank you, Bigfoot but Morris Dees. I was gonna say Max Morris Dees. I appreciate that. Uh so he was fired, eighty one years old, and he was the one Behind most of this, working with media matters, yeah, uh, media matters, BuzzFeed, and things like that, Uh, putting up and placing certain conservative groups as hate groups. And there's massive lawsuits against the Southern Poverty Law Center. And what is even B.I. has now taken away the legitimacy. The FBI has listed them no longer as a legitimate or,
3: uh, Anti hate group.
1: Yeah, they now just put them down and says they're no longer legitimate. I love it. I love it. And Cal is putting up uh, the news story up, uh, in the chat room. Thanks, Cal. Um, but no, they didn't explain the firing of the uh, founder Morrissey. Oh, here it is. And of course, I'm almost done talking about it, and I finally find the. Artist.
3: <laughs>
2: Stuff happens.
1: Oh. Oh. And here we go. There's a lot of anger and resentment inside the company. Their black employees are paid less than their white ones, a source said. These fields wow. he's being scapegoated because the Southern Poverty Law Center was down a whole bunch of money. They didn't raise that no much way. money last year. So, ah, it's not just about the lawsuits. It's not just about you know, being bigoted against your own employees. It's about the Benjamins.
3: (laughs) Wow. Interesting.
1: (sighs) Oh, man. Yeah. Now, Curtis, you're out of Florida, and you're pretty much up on things, and you pretty much know what's going on because you work with your local GOP and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Are you aware of two new bills that are going into the Florida uh, legislation Uh, Being put forward is S-1310 and H-1165 would make posting any photo of firearms by minors on social media or anything resembling a firearm illegal. The bills were proposed by Democrats. They do not contain any reference to (laughs) threats of violence or danger of any kind. It's just the posting of pictures. And having the guns in the photos confiscated. So if you're out shooting with your dad at the firing range or you're out hunting and you take a picture of you and your dad, you know, with holding your rifles and your game or with the target or whatever, and you post that up, say, on Instagram, you just committed a crime and the state of Florida is going to come after you, you, the child, charge you with a crime and confiscate your firearms. And probably then to boot charge your parents with child abu- abuse and then charge them with some sort of a crime for allowing the kid to have the firearm
2: yeah this is just more craziness yeah, from right, the right left thing,
1: resembling and when when Bohr puts in there I said resembling the pop tart came to mind or pointing your finger in the shape of a gun came to mind resembling <laughs>
2: Well, I can say this much: as long as the, the Republicans control um, both houses and the state senate—I mean, the state congress—this um, this this bill isn't going anywhere. Um, as you know, this is well, the season of c- cuckoo ness from the the left, especially the <laughs> socialist wing. And I, I actually I'm enjoying it because the more craziness that comes out of this party and their candidates. The, the more people get to see how absurd, you know, their ideas and policies are. So I, I think some people come to their census and say, hey, you know, this is just too far out there. I'm going to get with um, the Republicans because their policies seem to be working. You know, the economy is going strong and, and you know, things look great. So um, I hope the left keep it up. <laughs>
1: Well, you can thank Florida State Senator Jason Pizzo and State Representative Siobhan Jones um, posting photos of a Nerf gun or anything resembling a fire gun on any public social media account. It provides for immediate confiscation of said whatchamacallit and calls for the parents to attend parental classes and even to do community work service with their child. Mm-hmm it's not going fly court violates the law the parents may be forced to take uh, the classes or perform the community service uh, also says any firearm that's possessed or used by a minor in violation of this section shall be promptly seized by law enforcement officer and disposed of no not not taken and, you know you go to court and see whether or not you actually committed a crime or you had an intent of committing any crime no nope. No actual crime is committed. You just expressed your First Amendment right of posting. You're not making any threats. There's nothing criminal in it, but Florida just criminalized a very innocent act. Now, it even goes further under the law. Parents of Myers who have been caught posting pictures of firearms could be subject to criminal charges if their child were able to access And photographed their guns because the weapons weren't properly locked away. Now think back to that picture of daddy and the kid at the firing range. And the kid posting the picture of daddy holding his gun. So now he's posting a picture of his parents' firearm. And the firearm is not locked away from the child. That would be a crime. This This is absolutely outrageous. The fact that they would go
2: so far. I wish we would have (laughs) had the opportunity to bring this up with state representative Mike Hill when we were um, interviewing him. But like, like me, he would tell you the same thing, you know, these um, bills aren't going anywhere as long as the Republicans, you know, control everything in Tallahassee. So that's a good thing. But um,
3: I'm,
2: I'm sure more craziness will come come up, you know, during the session.
1: (laughs) Well, if you want those bill numbers, let me know, and I'll shoot them over to you. It's House 1310. I'm sorry, Senate 1310. Yes.
3: Senate 1310 and House
1: 1165. And House 1165.
2: All right. Yeah, I'll ask him about Um, that.
1: I had another silly one here, but, oh, yes, Centers for Disease Control. Um, They're saying that there's, in 2017, there was somewhere between 3,100 and 2,036,000 people injured by guns. Now, in the CDC report, and if anyone has ever read them before, and I've tried to read them, and they're full of gibberish, but they never classify how people are injured by firearms specifically. And they'll say so many deaths, but they don't say whether or not it's suicide, homicide, um, accidental. Uh, it, it doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't It doesn't even break it down whether or not it, it was a legal firearm or an illegal firearm. Well, it's actually not the legal or illegal firearm, but legal possession or illegal possession. They never break it down in the CDC. Now you think about the high number of illegal possession of firearms, especially in the Chicago area, and gang violence, such as in L.A., New York, Detroit. The CDC doesn't put this in the report. But they give you a vague estimate of how many people have been killed by firearms. And uh, they don't tell you whether or not it... by law enforcement or by the bad guy, too. They don't break that down. So these CDC reports are full of BS, but the gun control groups are using them to throw in our face and saying, see how bad firearms are, we've got to confiscate them and repeal the Second Amendment. Go ahead, Curtis.
2: See, that's where we on the right should, I don't know, we need to have a, a PR wing of the Republican Party. Because we can put out there all the instances where guns save lives, you know. There's plenty of stories out there of um some defenseless um woman um defending herself against a would be um rapist or or attacker and, and she did it with a firearm. Um somebody's house has broken in, you know, they 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 survived it because they, they had a weapon, you know, they could use. To you know, defend themselves and their property, but things like this doesn't get out there, and I think that's where we no, and are falling short on the PR part. You know,
1: right, right, and exactly, you're exactly right. There is no statist- statistics kept on how these lives were saved because there was someone there legally in possession of a firearm that saved a life. There's yeah. nothing there. So if the life was saved and you didn't have to actually fire the firearm, there's there's no recording at the CDC. I mean, there may be a police report because, you know, you call the cops, hey, I scared off the burglar, or this guy tried to rob the little old lady, I saved her, I pulled out my legally registered concealed permit and firearm, and I protected her life or protected the life of my family. There's no statistic out there. How many lives are saved daily because of a legal person with a firearm. And, Curtis, what is the best way to defeat a bad guy with a gun? You have a good guy with a gun. Uh,
2: with a gun, yeah. That's right. And um, it's, well, it's well documented, you know, areas or communities where um, guns are allowed in the home and um, open carry. Crime is way down, you know, but they don't want to report that. You have the most problems. And now you that have we've got cities that where cities that have, you know, anti-gun laws, they have the most crime, <laughs> the most violence. So people aren't able to, you know, now, to was, defend I was talking- themselves.
1: I was, I was watching the debate, uh, up on Fox last night. And, uh, I forgot who it was between, but it had to deal with uh, the border, especially around El Paso, because Beto O'Rourke, what an idiot this guy is, uh, had publicly stated that if he was elected president, he would take down the wall around El Paso. You know he actually wants to take down the entire southern border wall, but he specified the wall around El Paso. And his reasoning is that crime is up in El Paso. El Paso being a border town and I forget what the name of the Mexican town just on the other side. But it has the highest rate of illegal immigrants and gang violence just opposite El Paso. So of course that's gonna spill over naturally. You know, someone may force mm-hmm. legally to take the child to school because you got a lot of this. People don't realize at the southern border you have a lot of Mexicans daily crossing over to bring their children over to American schools so the child can attend an American school, a public school, for free. And then at the end of the day, the child goes back across the border. So if you've got gang members bringing their kids over, they're bringing that gang violence with them. So, of course, El Paso, if you've got a high rate of crime on the other city, the corresponding city on the Mexican border, you're going to see an increase in crime in El Paso. It's only natural, even though you have a border. But if you take that border down, it's going to be a free for all. But his logic is, no, you take the border down and it'll stop the crime.
2: Well, I I, I can't me? wait till he goes on the I, I I can't wait till he goes on the campaign trail with that that um fairy tale. It's going to be ripped to shreds.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and everyone has him as the darling. He's the next Clinton. He's the next Obama, Beto O'Rourke. And, you know, every time one of us confronts someone that's supporting him, and you've got a lot of people that are really rabid about him right now, what has he done? Tell us what legislation he proposed. What? Tell us what he actually did. He spent two years as a member of Congress. He sat in the background. He voted present, or he voted occasionally for a few bills, and asked by his colleagues. And there he goes we barely remember him. He just sat in the background. You didn't. He didn't go forward and work on any committees. What committee did he work on? What has he done? He's done actually zero, and they can't answer that. And yet mm-hmm. this is a man that wants to run to be president. Now remember, the last time there was a person that served two years in the Congress ran for Senate and failed and ran for president and one was 1865 and that was Abe Lincoln and Beto O'Rourke is no Abe Lincoln but this is what he wants to do it ain't gonna happen
2: no it's not and um, Uncle Joe is not gonna let it happen because he's gonna come out in a week or two and say hey I'm supposed to be the next president you gotta step back. Hillary had her chance. Now it's time for Uncle crazy.
1: Joe. Crazy, crazy Uncle Joe. Watch for all. Watch for all the pictures on the, the campaign trail that is going to uh, rise up. That um, he's grabbing women and children. You know, little girls. Okay. Uh, watch
3: for That's all, all the perfect
2: pictures. We just got to put that out there, Uncle Joe being Uncle Joe. <laughs> Down home
3: uh, folks
1: well, We have a few minutes We have a few minutes to go Before our next guest calls in Gary Williams uh, Back on the gun issue This just came out yesterday That a court rules that a gun maker can be sued Over the Newtown shooting Now They're making the gun maker Responsible Because this person bought their specific Firearm and then went out And killed someone with it well, that's the same thing as going out and saying, buying a Ford Jeep, not a Ford Jeep, I mean a Jeep Wrangler. And the person runs over a pedestrian uh, because they were drunk or like person. And so now you go back and you sue Jeep because that person bought that vehicle and then committed a crime with it. It makes absolutely no sense. And I thought that uh, this was settled law. They already determined and made this law that you cannot sue the gunmaker. There was a law out there that protects the gunmakers. If anyone knows what the legislation is, I remember, I don't remember when that was. I don't know if it was like 98 or something like that, but it was quite a mm-hmm. while back that they went forward and they passed legislation to protect the gunmakers from lawsuits, but this judge overstepped their bounds. And, of course, it's a Connecticut uh, Supreme Court ruling. The judges issued a 4-3 ruling that restated a wrongful death lawsuit and overturned a lower court ruling that the lawsuit was prohibited. Oh, it's by a 2005 federal law that shields gun manufacturers from liability in most cases when their products were used in crimes. So the law goes back to 2005 federal legislation. So how do you trump federal legislation? in a state Supreme Court, you let it go forward to the Supreme Court, and it's going to get overturned because by the logic I just gave, cannot sue Jeep if a customer of theirs with intent committed a crime using that Jeep. Think about how many bank robberies go on and the bad guys get away in the vehicle. So are you going to uh, sue the vehicle owners because those people use it as a getaway vehicle? What about gang members that shoot up neighborhoods? Are you going to go, as a drive-by shooting, go back to whoever manufactured that vehicle? Or, heaven forbid, whoever modified the vehicle with trim wheels and all the other little fluffy things they put on there? So the manufacturer, as well as the person that modifies the vehicle, will get sued? This is crazy. It'll be crazy. And we do have our next guest in on the line, And if I hit the right mouse, because I'm using two different computers here, let me get him in and put his name in here and welcome aboard Gary Williams author of Guardian of Guadalcanal*, the World War two story of Douglas a Monroe United States Coast Guard good afternoon Gary. how are you today
5: I am wonderful thank you so much
1: for having me
2: hello Gary <laughs>
1: oh it it is our pleasure and i got to tell you, uh, you know I read the book because I was emailing you questions. And I also yeah. emailed you that I got a point in the book, and it was so hard for me to read because I was crying so hard. I, it is a fantastic, very touching, very moving book. And you did a wonderful job for a hero that for a long time no one knew about.
3: Well,
5: thank you very much. And, and you're absolutely right. His story was long overdue.
1: Yeah. Now, um, I don't know where to begin, but I'm holding the book up in front of the camera, and people can see all the little yellow tabs I have here, because uh, normally I get a Kindle copy and I'll highlight a section and print it out. But since you gave me the book, and thank you for the autograph on it, I just took my little yellow stick notes, and I've got little notes all over. Now, you start off Chapter 1, and you tell a story about Doug's best uh, – best friend Mike Cooley growing up and of the wonderful thing he did for 40 years. And you talk about a specific ceremony back in 2011 um, when there was a dedication. Uh, tell us about how they were best friends growing up and where this all occurred. Give us a little background here.
5: Well, it, it all occurred in a, in a small town of Cle Elum, Washington at the, uh, Uh, in the foothills of the uh, Cascade Mountains uh, out in the state of Washington. And in this very small town, there was uh, Douglas Monroe, uh, just an an ordinary kid uh, like you and I growing up, and one of his best friends was Mike Cooley. And uh, back then, back in the the early 20s, uh, -20s, mid-20s, the railroad and logging were big industries in that area. And Mike Cooley and Doug Monroe would hang out at the local train depot. And they would get rides on big stacks of luggage and things like that. Um, and that would occupy their time. As they as they grew up and as uh, more of a war footing um, came um, in, um, that included our involvement in World War II, Doug Monroe could kind of sense that uh, things were not going in a good direction um, because he um, was actually born in Vancouver, British Columbia, because his mother was an uh, English citizen uh, who had immigrated from England to Canada. And, of course, uh, with immigration laws at the time was when she married James Monroe, who was an American citizen, that Edith became a, uh, a citizen as well and naturally uh, dug as, uh, as well. So Doug enlists in the Coast Guard uh, in September of 1939, just before the outbreak of World War II or America's involvement. And he had two objectives. One, he wanted to see the world. And number two, he wanted to help people. And and, and much like the, the, the uh, relatively recent movie, Hacksaw Ridge, where um, Desmond Doss was interested in... in uh, saving lives, not taking them, that was, that was pretty much Doug Monroe's uh, attitude as well. And when he looked at the various branches of the service, he thought his best chance of being able to do that. So he tried to, when, when Doug enlisted, he actually um, failed his enlistment physical. Um, and, and unlike me and, and a lot of others out there where we would weigh too much, Doug Monroe actually weighed too little. So the next couple of weeks, his mother spent um, fattening, up, fattening him up with peanut butter and lettuce sandwiches and banana milkshakes. Um, but he tried to talk Mike Cooley into enlisting with him, uh, but Mike was having none of that, but was subsequently drafted and served in Europe uh, in World War II. Uh, Douglas Monroe, of course, went on to become a military legend um, that you are absolutely right most people have not heard of. Uh, in World War II.
1: Well, you know, um, you you start off the chapter with a ceremony that happened on the anniversary of his death back in 2011.
5: Um, you were at that ceremony? Because it sounds like you were. Yes, I, I was. And that ceremony is actually held every year on the Friday before uh, September 27th, which is the day Douglas Monroe was killed. Um, in, uh, at Point Cruz uh, uh, in Guadalcanal. So that ceremony is an annual ceremony. And now, it was um, a privilege uh, to be there. And I, 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 that was kind of my introduction uh, to the, um, uh, the Monroe legend, uh, where uh, you got to want to get to Cleelum, Washington. You don't just take a wrong exit and end up in Cleelum. you got to want to get there. Um, And as widely attended as it is uh, from the locals, as well as uh, nearby um, uh, Coast Guard uh, and Marine Corps uh, units from the Seattle area, you usually average between 80 to 120 people at those ceremonies, which is absolutely incredible uh, all these years later.
1: It is, it is. And
5: it was a dedication,
1: and the person that spoke at the dedication happened to have been his nephew, uh, Commander Doug Shaheen, who also was Coast Guard. And what struck me is that when he did his speech, which you have inside the book, he cites what the Coast Guard does every day that we don't realize. You know, we make fun of them like they're the the other branch of the military. You know, you've got the Marines, number one, then you've got the Navy and the Army, and then you've got the Coast Guard, you know, and it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, and the Coast Guard. Um, but they do a lot of hard work every day, quietly in the background, and we don't realize that they serve not just here in our coastal waters, but worldwide.
5: Oh, that, that's absolutely true. And, and there's, there's no question that the Coast Guard, on a daily basis, interacts with the average American – more than probably all the other branches of service combined. And some of the things they do, the rescues
1: and everything else, is absolutely phenomenal. Um, You already spoke about, you know, the family roots where his mother um, came from England over here to the United States, but she was one of 12 children, and it was her mother, that brought them over because she was, you know, a widowed mother of twelve, and you imagine the hardship they had traveling over with twelve kids to a brand new land. Uh, what she went through to raise these twelve kids
5: is phenomenal. Absolutely, and and all of them turned out great. Uh, the uh, Edith's family has a long history of um, uh, civic engagement and uh, military service, so. Um, you know, and 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 obviously we'll get to this later. Edith's in involvement with the military, but n- none of that uh, should be surprising. I mean, w- once you understand their background, what happened uh, should not come as a surprise to anyone.
1: No, it's not. And matter of fact, uh, we've, we're up on Facebook and YouTube right now, and I just put in place of my face yours and Curtis's a little video I put together of different pictures of Doug and what was going on at the time. You know, you mentioned Doug had this need to serve, uh, but in his background, not only was he close to his sister, but he always helped the poor, where he was delivering coal uh, during the Depression and what he would do to help families. There was something in him, because he also worked with the Boy Scouts and did other things.
5: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know he and his friend, Mike Cooley, would use a wheelbarrow to deliver coal to people who could afford it. But for the the, the many, many people who could not, he and, and Mike Cooley would go out into the woods, and they would chop wood and deliver wood to the poor uh, free of charge because that's what needed to be done. People did what needed to be done back then and he was greatly affected by the tent cities the soup kitchens the uh, the uh, the bread lines uh, those kind of things and he just thought that you know he he could do something about that
1: well you know here he is a young kid you know he's got a whole life in front of him he's very talented very skilled uh he's also extremely athletic and good looking you know he could have a girl like that Uh, But he was also very, very politically aware. Now, his parents really didn't talk about this at the dinner table or anything. And out of nowhere, he got into the news. He wanted to know what was going on. And before the draft was even enacted, he was predicting there would be a draft, which caused him to enlist rather than to be drafted.
5: Exactly right. Uh, He he knew uh, or could sense that that was coming and decided that if, if, if military service was uh, going, going to be compulsory, he was going to get his choice of where he wanted to go uh, before you were drafted into a service. Um, and and that's, that's not all that uncommon. And, um, you know, his, uh, his exploits and his military service is, is actually military legend. So uh, he takes a backseat to no one uh, to the, his military service and sacrifice.
1: Well, what's what's funny is is that when he enlisted, he was told, uh, well, we haven't taken on any new recruits in so many years, and we have so many people in front of you, so you may as well forget it. But he enlisted anyway. Uh, And there were no recruits, I believe, in seven years. And because there were none, the Coast Guard had shut down their training base. They didn't even have a training base. So when he finally was called up, this, this was just hysterical as I'm reading it. The, how they trained him or where, what they did with him, you've got to tell us the story because the recruit is like, well, there's 1,200 people in front of you. But he was just one of a
5: handful they brought in. Yeah, absolutely. And when, and when they finally, uh, they ended up taking 12 recruits and they were uh, bused to Port Townsend in the state of Washington. When they got to Port Townsend, Nobody at Port Townsend knew they were even coming. So there was nothing set up for these for these twelve recruits Uh, and there was no formal training program. So for the next three days the next three days they chipped paint, they mowed grass and they peeled potatoes. But just a few days before, unbeknownst to them, that President Roosevelt had transferred the assets of the Coast Guard to the Navy. Uh, specifically, the Coast Guard Cutter Spencer, and they needed seven recruits to uh, fill out their crew complement before they would uh, round, um, um, go through the Panama Canal and, and get over into New York City, well, where they would be formally trained Before we go the Navy.
1: before we go all the way into that, I want to bring in Ray Evans, someone he met on the way to the bus. Yes, and how the two of them hooked up and became best friends. And how Ray ended up with him on the Spencer. Please go on to that because I, I, I forgot about putting Ray into the story. As you were talking about it, Ray is so important to this whole
5: story. Well, a- absolutely, because their joint enlistment is one of the most significant relationships in American military history. Um, Ray Evans was walking into the federal building in Seattle at the same time Doug was to enlist, and they met there uh, and became. Um, well, lifelong uh, best friends for the rest of Doug's life, which would be three years. Um, but uh, Ray went on to serve with distinction, retired as a Coast Guard commander, and tragically, we just lost him about four years ago. Um, but being able to do the research for Guardian of Guadalcanal, he was an integral part in being able to tell the story. And uh, you know, as 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 you go through and you read that, you can uh, see Ray Evans's. Um, fingerprint over uh, the entire manuscript. It's, he, he was a wonderful individual, and we just lost his widow about two weeks ago. Um, so it, that is an end, a tragic end, uh, but an inevitable end to a great um, military story.
1: Now, you, you started to talk about Spencer. Now, who was Spencer, and why was this cutter uh, named after him?
5: He was – now you're getting into some uh, area that um, I think it was named after John Spencer, who was a former Secretary of the Treasury. Back then, the Coast Guard cutters were named after, after Secretaries of the Treasury. It wasn't until recently that Coast Guard cutters be, uh, started being n- named after uh, Coast Guard heroes. So John Spencer was a former Secretary of the Treasury.
1: Yeah, and a veteran of the War of 1812. But on this cutter, uh, because it, Coast Guard does air and sea rescues, they had a biplane on that. And you think back at that time, these were really experimental planes.
5: A- a- absolutely. Uh, so it was – and again, when Doug Monroe and Ray Evans and the others get on board the ship, they were in such a hurry to to get to New York that they didn't even come into port, that Ray Evans and uh, Doug Monroe and the others were taken out in a rowboat in order to get on the ship um, so that they didn't have to take the time uh, to dock. Um, and that That's how big of a hurry uh, they were in. They got on board. They were assigned as quartermasters. But again, there was no training, so they learned uh, themselves how to be quartermasters. And then, of course, Uh, in the, um, in the weather patrols that they subsequently conducted in the North Atlantic, they trained themselves to be signalmen because they had gotten word that Navy was going to reinstitute its signalman ratings that it had discontinued at the end of world war one.
1: Yeah. And there was no one to teach them. So these two guys taught themselves, which I found absolutely amazing. And, um, they were single men, they were quartermasters, they were doing double duty, and yet there was no one there to train them, so they were doing it on the job. Uh, they actually earned a nickname. They called them the
5: Gold Dust Twins. Uh, what's with the Gold Dust Twins? The, the, the Gold Dust Twins were uh, an, an iconic, um, um, not metaphor, but a label of uh, soap uh, back, in, uh, back in the day. And um, although Ray and Doug didn't look alike, they were always together. So people just jokingly referred to them as the gold dust twins.
1: Now, um, when they were doing all this, um, Doug gets really, really ill. He ends with, up with pneumonia uh, and yet he's still doing his duties until Ray actually has to carry him to sick bay.
5: A- absolutely. And uh and um, Doug was, was deathly ill. Um, But I mean, that's just, that's just the way they were back then. There was the sense of duty, the sense of obligation, because there wasn't like there was extra people waiting on the bench to be able to go in and, and, um, and fill in a spot. Uh, if, If one individual wasn't able to do the job, then somebody else had to pick up the slack. And as, uh, as quickly as things were moving to a war footing, um, there were no extra people, and, and things just had to get done.
1: Yeah, I I was amazed at what the pay was that they were earning back then, you know, just $36 <laughs> a month. I go, yeah. oh, my God. And what these guys went through for a measly $36 a month, because as they're based in New York Harbor, um, they're now – attached to neutrality patrols. Now, I understand the law was passed to, um, I'm trying to think of the word, to initiate neutrality patrols, but they already had them two years earlier. Because I was reading your book and I was a little taken aback because they were doing this back in 1939, two years before Congress enacted the legislation.
5: Well, they'd actually, the United States Congress had been enacting Various degrees of neutrality legislation in 1939, 1940, and 1941. Um, you had the isolationists who wanted nothing to do with uh, what was going on in Europe, um, and and that was reflected into Congress. So there were various different types of neutrality legislation, either um, passed in its own name or attached to other legislation. So you did start to uh, begin to see. Um, neutrality patrols and those kind of things taking place as early as 1939.
1: Well, I got to let you know, uh, my co-host is a Navy veteran, a Navy uh, veteran of the uh, uh, Desert Storm. Uh, And I have in the chat room a retired Navy chief. Uh, My Navy chief retired said that when he was in the Navy, the Coast Guard didn't have signalmen, so they they, uh, shut them down again. And recently the Navy disestablished the SM rating, and all of the signalmen became quartermasters. So once again, they stopped using signalmen. But it, was, it ended up being pretty important uh, as we go on through the book. But I found that uh, on these patrols they had, because they were mostly in the Northern Sea, and the conditions of it and the corrosive seas and, that they were facing and how they had to constantly, constantly fix the boats.
5: Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, your co-host there, uh, being an, an, a Navy uh, veteran, uh, certainly understands that seawater corrodes everything it touches, and it so does. Uh, uh, maintenance uh, on, a, uh, on a on a sea vessel is a twenty-four-seven operation.
2: You know, Gary, i I've, I've only had the honor of knowing this brave American hero just today. I definitely will get up to speed on his story. I only wish that, you know, channels like Fox would, you know, present some kind of story every week on, on our our heroes, especially the guys who were Medal you know Honor awardees. I think they warrant that. Now, where I live, which is also a small town, we have a, a Medal of Honor awardee named Robert Jenkins who was a Marine and at age 20 he served in Vietnam and he died protecting his best buddy who went into the military with him who happened to be a white guy. Now, Robert Jenkins was black, but he sacrificed his life for his friend. He jumped on, on his friend to protect them from a grenade that had been lobbed at them. Now, you know, we, we have people that go to the movies and spend millions, um, Uh, on on these superheroes that are fictitious. And we have plenty of real flesh and blood heroes that they should be admiring. And I really think, you know, like I said, we should have some kind of media outlet where we can, can highlight these guys and their sacrifices and, um, pay tribute, proper tribute to, you know, what they did for their country.
5: Uh, Absolutely. I agree. Um, but, um, I, I, I can't answer why why we don't. Um, I have spent um, the last uh, nine years uh, previously to the Gu- uh, Guardian of Guadalcanal story. You know, I, I wrote uh, Lieutenant Michael Murphy's uh, biography and have traveled the country uh, telling the story of, of these guys and, and those mm-hmm. like them. And there is just a very narrow lane of traffic uh, that is interested in hearing it and i think it all has to do it's it, it's sad but it has everything to do with what generates revenue and,
2: and that's true um,
5: and and hearing stories of um of men and women who have done great things um for the lack of a better word just doesn't uh just doesn't appear sexy enough for um advertisers uh, to support things like that um, but every time a, a movie is made, whether it is um, um, Hacksaw Ridge or pra- Saving Private Ryan or any of these kind of guys, um, these um, military movies out there, and, and the most recent example, of course, is uh, to me is, um, is, is Hacksaw Ridge. It did extremely well at the box office. Um, and, and subsequently in in other uh, streaming services, but why um, Hollywood? Uh, it, we could do a whole show on um, you know what is going on out there, but um, I, I, I I don't I don't I, I agree with you, well, chief. I have
2: no idea. I believe I believe Americans would flock to see movies like that because when well, first of all we love our our military and our heroes. And when you look at movies like Black Hawk Down and American Sniper, they did exceedingly yep. well at Absolutely. the box office. And I just think there's a a agenda out there to to kinda like keep that kind of um movie, you know, in the background and not to um I, I hate to say it, you know, they don't want to give um any any kind of picture that, you know, Trump our president, you know, would have that would favor him being reelected, and and patriotism is one of the things that draws people to conservatism and the Republican side, and I, and I see that you know as maybe one of the reasons why they don't produce and promote such movies. You, you understand what yeah, I'm saying? And
3: it,
5: absolutely. And if we can take one more minute on on Hacksaw Ridge, I had the uh, the privilege. Of meeting Desmond Doss Jr. And usually, when you have movies made like that, Hollywood always takes a license, and sometimes it's hard to tell fact from fiction. And so I asked um, Desmond Doss Jr., um, you know, how true is that story? And he said, it is 99% true. The only thing that was different was that his parents did not meet. Um, at a hospital, they met at church. Other than that, the story is exactly the same that he grew up with since um, 1950, and that Hollywood had been after uh, Desmond Doss for that story, but Desmond would only release the story if they were going to tell it correctly, and it wasn't until uh, Mel Gibson came along and agreed to do it correctly that, uh, the story was made. So, you know, um, w- we were, we were very pleased to hear that there are individuals out there who are willing to tell the story because that the story of Desmond Doss, you, you don't need to embellish that. He was a hero in his own right with no embellishment. And it's the same thing with a, um, with a Douglas Monroe, you don't have to embellish that story. Um, the story is phenomenal enough just the way it is.
2: And may I add, 13 Hours.
3: It is.
2: That was a good movie yes. about real-life situations. Absolutely.
3: Yep.
5: Yep. And, and another and great black movie down. that didn't do well uh, was uh, Finest Hours. The Finest Hours is a great movie, did a great job of detailing one of the greatest Coast Guard rescues uh, in U.S. history, off the coast of Massachusetts, and it, it didn't do that well at, at the box office. And I, I, I've watched it several times. I thought it was a phenomenal film.
2: That wasn't the one with Kevin Costner, was it? <sighs> Kevin Costner. He was in a Coast Guard movie one time. I can't oh, remember
3: that the name was that was
2: called The
5: Guardian. That yeah, was uh, yeah. Ashton Kutcher and, and Kevin Costner was in The Guardian which did do well, which did do well and, and did a wonderful job of, of talking about um, the training um, of um, mm-hmm. rescue swimmers.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, you but know, if, this we, if we book, can. Um, are...
1: Go ahead, Gary. No, 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 please. No, I was saying, this book of yours has so much action in it. I easily can see this being made into a fantastic movie, you know, between the romance with his sister and the history of his parents and how he fell in love with a girl, never really talked too much about her. Um, All this is really, really interesting. But the action in the North Atlantic with the battle of the North Atlantic that spread over, thousands of miles and what they had to do with those seas and the icing of the decks and the masts and everything else. And these guys trying to hang on, you know, that alone would make such a, a vibrant scene, but what they went through and how these guys didn't go overboard is amazing.
5: Yep. Ab- absolutely. And, um, of course the, um, the battle of, of Guadalcanal, um, You know, and and the fact that Douglas Monroe was right in the middle of Marine Corps legends uh, and and Coast Guard legends. I mean, Douglas Monroe lands, he's a petty officer first class. He's a signalman, but he is the lead um, coxswain for the um, Cactus Navy, which usually doesn't get much press at all. And he, he is in charge. A petty officer first class is in charge of a flotilla that lands 500 of Chesty Puller's 1-7th Marines at Point Cruz. And then because they are getting clobbered, they have to go back in and get them. And Well, we're going to get to there, that. There's some we're going to get to that. I don't want to jump too I I don't want
1: to get too far ahead of that because there's so much more that's interesting in here. And, um, you know, and it was kind of like a derogatory term. Uh, But as you said, you know, here was this petty officer in charge of so much, they were trying to train these boats for doing landings and they're having Navy guys trying to drive these boats and no one knew how to do it, but it was Ray Evans and Doug Monroe that developed the techniques and talent, and showed everyone how to do it. And for some reason, the Coast Guard guys were just so much better at it. There had to be a reason for that, hadn't there, big Gary? Well,
5: and I think that's what it is 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 the Navy, and 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 certainly, um, you know, the chief can speak to this. You know, they're they're they have big boats. That's what they that's what their specialty is. The, the Coast Guard is. Uh, has a specialty in driving small boats in the surf, and that is what was going to be needed for the amphibious warfare in the Pacific in World War II. Um, and, and it's 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 not that somebody wasn't good at it; it's that here were a group that they were the best surfmen in military service. So we're going to use them uh, to train others, and when. Um, the the war in the Pacific uh, broke out, Um, you you, you didn't have enough coxswains. So again, Ray Evans and Doug Monroe, they volunteered to do that. The only rating that they ever achieved was signalman. It wasn't quartermaster. It wasn't coxswain. But yet his coxswain skills is what subsequently um, um, leads to his uh, earning uh, the Medal of Honor.
3: Wow.
1: well they went from they went from the uh Spencer they got transferred to the Liggett and they were now crossing over the Atlantic uh and they ended up you know with a contingent of marines on board and it was u- unusual because the marines always stayed separate but yet Doug managed to become one of them
5: essentially because they were more of the small town um Average people that that he was um, that he was comfortable with, um, the people that weren't uh, um, afraid to get their hands dirty uh, the, the, the people that um, you know and, and I, I kind of go into he, he just felt comfortable around those guys and and they felt comfortable around him. so by the time they get to Guadalcanal, he basically is considered one of them, and he knew them all. And most importantly, they knew him, and I think that kind yeah, of uh, relationship certainly um, augmented um, the service on Guadalcanal and and the legacy that the Coast Guard and the Marine Corps share uh, today as a result of that one day.
1: Well, you know, while they're being transferred, and they were bringing the troops over Pearl Harbor happened and yes. you have the casualties and everything else that had happened in Pearl Harbor, but it was really unusual that not one single coast guard ship went down. As a matter of fact, the coast guard ships were
5: the first ones to return fire. Yes, uh, th- they were. And I, I, I think that the, uh, the Japanese attacking, they had their targets and, and didn't consider the, uh, um the Coast Guard as as part of their targets. They were after Battleship Row and to try and uh wipe out the Pacific Fleet and um, um either forgot or weren't concerned about uh the Coast Guard.
2: Yeah they wanted the carriers. Yeah. But the
5: carriers
3: it,
1: the Coast Guard there. boats were the ones that were pulling out the uh, injured and the, the dead from the water on that day it was the Taney and the Kukai is that the name how do you say it and yeah, yes the Tiger and Reliant there were four vessels mm-hmm. out there that were not only returning far but doing rescues
5: yes and of course you know uh, search and rescue is a big part of what the Coast Guard has always done uh, but you know there are people from um, Pearl Harbor that owe their lives to the Coast Guard.
1: Now, somehow, you know, I made a note that Admiral. Go ahead, Curtis.
2: No, I was just going to say probably why the Coast Guard doesn't always get its props is because it only comes under the Department of the Navy, I think, during wartime. Yes. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but. You know, well, most I, people don't and think I of think them you're as absolutely the war right. war
5: mm-hmm. You're absolutely right, because right now it is the only branch of the military that uh, is not located within the Pentagon, um, is currently under the Department of Homeland Security, and is only transferred to the Navy uh, during times of war. But, um, you know, the Coast Guard has 11 distinct missions, one of which is military um, military readiness. So um I I guess when you uh, look as a whole uh, as to what that branch of the service does it probably does fit under the um Department of Homeland Security um but of course as a result of that uh, as you said it doesn't get the props that it uh, that it certainly deserves.
1: No. And in your book you also talk about you know Pearl Harbor as I was mentioning And when I read about how many times they missed the message, because uh, on September 24th, uh, U.S. intelligence deciphered a bomb plot message to Japan's Council General in Honolulu with a map containing the exact locations of the ships in Pearl Harbor. And yet they scoffed at this. It was uh, Admiral Ernest J. King, uh, who was a member of the Joint Chiefs of you wrote, you scoffed at the idea of containing Japan until the war in Europe had concluded. So they basically dismissed Japan. They said, oh, nothing's going to happen here. Let's take care of you know, Hitler first
5: and Mussolini and then worry about Japan. That was a terrible mistake. Well, and, and we, uh, history is replete with examples of um, where we have too narrow of a focus and we miss um, what's going on around us. And Japan took, uh, took full advantage of that. Well, you also
1: write about uh, Chester Nimitz about it and how he was aware of what was going on and how MacArthur was uh, brought in onto the street. So you get the background on all of them. But what I found interesting, you also included the Australian uh, postal watches. And this was also another pivotal part of the story to the book
5: and how they... Help to turn the tide in certain areas. Oh, abs- absolutely. If it wasn't for Martin Clemens and, and his, um, his small group of coast watchers in the South Pacific, uh, w- we probably would have missed the building of uh, what subsequently became Henderson Field on Guadalcanal. And, you know, w- when you look at how dominoes fell if that first one doesn't fall, you know, we could have had a a, a completely different uh, outcome.
1: Absolutely, because no one understood the importance of Guadalcanal, and no one knew what the Japanese were doing with the buildups, because they were island hopping, and their plan was to take over Australia. Um, they already were trying to build runways on Guadalcanal, and no one was paying attention to this.
5: Right. And it was just a, uh, a reconnaissance mission over the, um, over Guadalcanal. Um, because they, and, and Guadalcanal was added as, um, as Operation Watchtower uh, literally at the last minute. Guadalcanal was never the primary target. Um, when you're looking at Operation Cartwheel, uh, which Operation Watchtower was part of, That was added at the last minute once they uh, recognized how quickly that airfield was going up on Guadalcanal. They knew that if the Japanese secured an airfield on Guadalcanal, that um, Australia was in serious trouble.
1: Well, you know, what I found touching and when I I said this would be an excellent movie, because there are love interests in it, and there's a lot of funny little things that happen in the book that, you know, are very amusing, because Ray and Doug get transferred from the patrol duty in the North Atlantic, and they get sent over to the Pacific, and they end up in Australia, and you write about the very first day they get there, they were on the Hunter Leggett, and they arrive on May 28th, and there's a band playing John Philip Sousa, and... As you go to describe their antics, it is so much fun to read about it, about our Australian friends.
5: Absolutely. And, and all of that information came as – there, there would have been no source for that had it been not uh, for Ray Evans. And it just he, – he they these were two kids from small towns, um, wide-eyed, uh, in a foreign country, and couldn't believe the reception that um, that Americans were getting in um, in New Zealand and Australia. They were just, they couldn't believe it.
1: Now, it, no, and it was here that Doug fell in love with this young lady who wrote letters to him for the following months, and afterwards continued on with his mother. Did you ever get to see any of those letters?
5: No, those are lost to history. Um, as well as most of uh, Doug Monroe's um, uh, military records, uh, burial flag, all of that is gone. Um, and we can certainly get into um, the, the reasons why of that, um, you know, a little later, if
6: you'd like. Oh,
5: absolutely. But most absolutely. The, you there know, a, a few pictures, oh, a, a few letters from the president, and that's it. Yeah. That's it.
1: Yeah. Ray and Doug were being transferred constantly. It got to the point where they were told, don't even bother to unpack your bags because they were being transferred (laughs) all over the place. And I thought that was rather humorous the way the two of them handled it.
5: Absolutely, because things were happening so quickly um, in the Pacific um, that that, that's basically, uh, that is absolutely correct. told, don't even, you know, you're here, but don't even bother to unpack. Because you're not gonna be here that long. Um, and they just take it in stride. Well and I'm sure you know, while they're they the there only in Australia that in that situation.
1: No, go ahead. not at all. Um, matter of fact we have the chief in the chat room, his father was at Pearl Harbor uh and uh I'm sorry, Boyd. Boyd his father was at Pearl Harbor and he said all my dad would tell me about that morning is that the Japs got him out of the brig That's too true A lot of guys got released Because they needed those men Uh, But talk about (laughs) needing men Uh, While they're in Australia They end up with the monsoon We have this huge build up Of allied forces in Australia Bringing in men and supplies But what happened was They weren't prepared For the monsoon
5: rains And that caused some heavy losses there Absolutely We, We knew little of nothing about Guadalcanal, they didn't even have up-to-date maps of, of the terrain uh, when um, the invasion of Guadalcanal kicked off, and and again, the weather was so completely different that the heat, the humidity, and the the rain just a- uh, absolutely just bogged down our troops until uh, they could get acclimated. And then, of course, you've got malaria and dengue fever and all of those diseases that, um, that just take a tremendous toll um, on the body.
1: Yeah, and now as they were building up to the invasion of Guadalcanal, you know, the, the USS Saratoga and the USS Wasp you know, were announced approaching. And then at the end of the announcement, they told the men to d- destroy uh, their diaries and journals. Um, were they were afraid of these falling into Japanese
5: hands? Oh, I, I have no, I, I have no doubt about that. Otherwise, what what would be the reason for that? Asking these men well, to destroy the size
1: uh, of the invasion. For people to understand the size of the invasion, you know, when when we invaded Wake, there were ten vessels. What was going into Guadalcanal?
5: Uh, it was a tremendous task force, Task Force 65. It was huge. Um, at that time, it was the largest armada ever um, ever sent afloat. Now, subsequently, um, Operation uh, Overlord um, took that over. But at, that, at the time of the Guadalcanal um, uh, assault, it was the largest armada ever assembled.
1: But they were practicing. They were trying to practice the landings. And nothing was going right. And Admiral Fletcher ends up stepping in. Uh,
5: yes. Um, and, you know, Admiral Fletcher <coughs> kind of has a, um, um, a, a a dual role here. But, um, yeah, he, he was never, Admiral Fletcher, from my research, was never sold on the importance of, um, or never bought into the importance of in, uh, of invading Guadalcanal. So as a result, he didn't see that as a priority. And subsequently, um, you know, that, that, uh, that comes back uh, to, uh, to haunt us. And, you know, when you follow the dots of, of uh, military history, I believe that um, those decisions that he made in Guadal- on Guadalcanal um, essentially ended his military career.
1: And rightly so, and rightly so, because he had no idea of amphibious landings, and he had no interest in the plans. Um, he he was going to leave boats unprotected. Uh, it, it was, the fact that he was even there is amazing. I'm surprised he was never pulled from the operation.
5: Um. um. Right. But things happened so quickly, it was a a, kind of like a cascading of bad decisions when he pulled his carriers out. And when he pulled his carriers out, that takes other ships, which means that all of the transport ships and the supply ships have no cover. So that means that Admiral Gormley has to pull those ships, which means that only uh, about 12 hours worth of supplies – were unloaded from the ships, uh, and it proved to be uh, proved to be tragic. I mean, the nickname of uh, you talk to any of the veterans that were there, and uh, Guadalcanal had the nickname of Operation Shoestring because that's what they were running that entire campaign on.
2: And today, well, the I good think thing they did was
3: they
2: put. All I was going to say today to at such things, they have what they call a Naval War College and they teach our future admirals and things like that, you know, the art of war based on, you know, our past experiences and our past failures. So, And then they, I don't think they had anything like that during World War II. So it was probably like on the job training. And quite a few admirals and generals failed because of that, that lack of knowledge and experience in actual combat.
5: Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And when you're in the middle of combat, that is not the time for on-the-job training. Uh, you know, I, I, I've got to say that everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And lapses in judgment and um, lack of leadership acumen become acutely aware when you're under pressure. And when when those kind of things happen, um, bad decisions end up being made with absolute tragic consequences.
1: Absolutely. The one good thing happened was that they put Lieutenant uh, Commander Dwight H. Dexter uh, in charge of establishing a naval operation base to be known as CACTUS. And this was the first time in history that ever a Coast Guard officer Was put in charge of naval and marine personnel. This was really
5: unusual. Absolutely. And he is still the only coastie, if you will, uh, to ever um, command a a naval uh, forward operating base.
1: And fortunately, because of that, he was the one that attached Doug to a marine unit because they needed a single signalman but they also needed someone to drive the boat. So Doug became uh, a tool, two jobs he had to do, but he became an absolute
5: Marine unit in an actual action. Uh, he was part of the third wave going into Tulagi. The first two waves of Marines were wiped out. So when Doug uh, uh, beached his craft, then, you know, he was attached to the Marine unit and spent the uh, first night there um, using semaphore and, uh, Um, blinker light uh, to communicate uh, the Marines' progress um, back to the ships. And then, of course, the following day was the uh, Battle of Sable Island, um, which uh, had tragic uh, consequences for uh, the U.S. Navy. Uh, Doug spent the morning uh, retrieving casualties from the waters uh, before he was transferred to Guadalcanal.
1: And uh, I made a note here about what Fletcher and Turner did during the Battle of Salvo. I'm looking for what the heck I I had this for. I think it was Fletcher that took tail and ran or something.
5: Yeah, that's, yes. Yeah, I I, I think the um, um, Admiral uh, Turner um, is, is, is quoted in the book as saying that he left us bare assed. Um, Was the uh, was the actual quote, and there is a source for that of someone who was at that meeting. So obviously there was at at the flag and the general officer level, uh, there was quite a bit of uh, dissension in the ranks over Admiral Fletcher's actions because of the cascading effect that his decision had.
1: And. There's, there's so much in this book that we could talk about. We can go on for hours, and I'm watching the clock. Um, as they're on, getting on Guadalcanal and everything, the Marines have already established a beachhead, but there was a problem with supplies because the Marines didn't know how to handle supplies. And as they were coming in, you had food landing on beaches, which was supposed to be uh, fuel, and
5: they were mixing everything up until the coasties came in. Yes, they didn't have a beachmaster. Um and you know um, everybody kind of gets territorial, you know, uh, uh some of the um, um marines landing uh took exception to being recruited to unload ships because that wasn't their job. Um so you kind of had um, um some some spats there Dexter gets on board or uh comes ashore uh and assumes uh even though he's supposed to be heading up and establishing the forward operating base, he knew there was going to be no forward operating base without supplies. So uh, he took on the role of beachmaster to get things in. And um, those that didn't want to work, regardless of service branch, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, you didn't want to do as you were told, uh, he had you shipped out.
1: Well, you know, they're here. They've established Henderson Field on Guadalcanal, and they got the Marines guarding it. And on um, August 12th, there is an action uh, in command of Colonel Frank Goddard. They were sent to reconnoiter the entrenchments, and they weren't prepared for what happened. And he, what he described later, you know, he was killed along with 19 of his Marines. But the survivors described their actions of unspeakable atrocities, what was going on? What were the Japanese doing to the Marines? What happened that day?
5: Well, a lot of that is, is still a mystery, but um, the, the Japanese culture then was that um, if you were not one of them, that um, you were subhuman. And, if, and, 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 and look at issues that we deal with today. When we no longer consider elderly or the unborn as human, when you can separate that they're no longer human, then we can justify, um, in in some minds, they can justify um, um, all kinds of atrocities being done uh, to individuals because they're not human. As long as we don't call them human and we call them something else, we use that as an excuse to do unspeakable things uh, to, um, um, to others. And history is replete with that.
1: Well, while they were on Guadalcanal, they were having a lot of problems in getting supplies. And this caused a lot of medical problems uh, between the Marines and the Coast Guards. And how these guys survived is absolutely amazing because they had rampant malaria, but they didn't have the drugs for
5: malaria. Uh, correct. Um, uh, the Adabrin, uh was being rationed. Uh, and if you don't take Adabrin the way you're supposed to, you might as well not take it at all. Um, and, um, you know, that's what subsequently got Admiral Dexter or uh, Lieutenant Commander Dexter at the time and Ray Evans transferred off of Guadalcanal in early November was malaria.
1: Well, Finally, the Beetlejuice arrived, and the Marines had built the original airfield, but they needed to get the B-52s and 25s onto the airfield, and this airfield wasn't good enough, so they allowed the CBs to do it. So normally, you know, the Marines are out there to fight, but they're not out there to build, (laughs) so, you know, the Navy had
5: to do a lot of work. Absolutely. Everybody had to do... Not necessarily what they were trained to do. They had to do what needed to be done. And some of that was on the job training at the time. And that was the only way they were going to survive. That was the only way they were going to survive. Everybody was going to have to do double and triple duty and do things that they had never done before.
1: Well, I have to correct myself. I said B 52s and 25s. Those are planes today. Back then, it was the B 17s yes. and B 24s. My bad. 29. <laughs> I, I
5: that, just don't that, That's want okay. That I you knew what you
1: meant.
3: So <laughs> I knew what you
1: meant. Well, someone listening later on will go, Well, you made a mistake. Oh, yes, I'll admit. You know, when I'm wrong, I, I have the courage to say I did a boo boo. <laughs> but you know, as they were building this, then came the Battle of Edison's uh, not Edison, Ridge. And wow, here they got malaria and suffering, and now they're in this uh, huge battle. Tell us about that.
5: Well, I I don't consider my uh, expertise on the Battle of Henderson Henderson, um, or uh, Edison's Ridge. I know that um, that was named after Colonel um, Merritt Edson, who was in charge, had just recently been promoted from lieutenant colonel to colonel. And was engaged in one of the bloodiest battles uh, on Guadalcanal. Um, but the Battle of Guadalcanal, I, I, I don't want to leave the impression that that was just one battle. It was a series of knockdown, drag out, close quarter combat uh, actions throughout the, um, the entire six months uh, from August until uh, November. It was just one battle after the other, whether it's the Battle of Sable Island, the Battle of Lunga Point, the Battle of Edson's Ridge, uh, the Godage Patrol, all of those were significant actions um, all wrapped up in in what is um, sometimes just thought of as, well, it was just the Battle of Guadalcanal. Oh, no, there was significant actions um, the entire six months. And I don't think um, I don't think the the average American out there uh, appreciates the sacrifice that was made, uh, because Guadalcanal was the first offensive that the U.S. had following Pearl Harbor, and they were using World War One equipment. So the Higgins boats that were being used on the initial landing of Guadalcanal were not the Higgins boats of. Um, of D-Day, there were no um, uh, drop bows on the early ones. They were fixed bows, so the only way the Marines had of getting ashore was to going over the bow. The, bro- the bow did not drop until subsequent models. Now, they came to Guadalcanal, but on the invasion, those were fixed uh, fixed bow craft, and they were much smaller, so there, ne- there needed to be a lot more of them. But there was a ton of significant battles, and um, Edson's Ridge was just one of them.
1: Well, now, on September 27th, here now you have Doug and Ray leading a whole group of these Higgins boats with these Marines coming in for a landing. And when they go to come in, the place they were told to hit, there's a huge coral reef that's blocking them. So Doug yes. makes the decision to go 100 yards up the shoreline, Uh, but the Japanese had anticipated this. So tell us about this day now. Doug is going 100 yards
5: up, about ready to turn and drop his Marines. Yes, uh, because they could see the coral. They knew they couldn't get there. Obviously, the Japanese, having been there for a while, knew all of this and knew they would have to move in one direction uh, or the other. In this particular case, they had to go to the left. Um, a a good hundred yards and Doug and Ray was telling um, Major Ortho Rogers who was subsequently killed on on that mission um, that he would as soon as they landed they would have to turn and make a right in order to land where they were where their plan called for them to land Um, but they they dropped uh, a little over a a battalion of Chesty Polars Marines that day and the Japanese were waiting on them. Uh, and as a result, it was in very short order that the, uh, uh, Doug Monroe and his boats were called to go back in and get them.
1: You know, there's a lot of other things that were going on today, that day. The Japanese came in and bombing, and they hit the command post. And this caused a huge problem, a lot of miscommunication.
5: A- a- absolutely. And, and then, of course, it didn't help. Um, when the Marines landed, when Doug Monroe landed the Marines, nobody uh, uh, thought to bring a radio along with them. So once they were uh, on uh, point cruise, there was no way for them to communicate. And as you said previously, uh, bombing raids by the Japanese had knocked out communications, but it, it just seemed to be – if it wasn't so tragic. It was, it was just a comedy of errors. Um, uh, in the fog of war that that just created one problem for them after the other.
1: Yeah, and it turns out there was a uh, <clears throat> certain officer, Edson, uh, who was commanded by Trusty Puller to go in with his men uh, to help. And the guy refused. And Puller, chesty um, Puller, was so pissed off. What happened was it caused his men to be cut off. And now you've got
5: these Marines stranded. Yes. And, of course, Chesty's line was, you know, we're not going to we're not going to um, give them up. And so Chesty took uh, uh, matters into his own own hands. And that that action is well, um, well well-defined in in the book, which led to um, uh, Doug Monroe's ultimate sacrifice that day.
1: Well, you know, they drop the guys off. They head back to the command post, uh, but helping bring over the wounded. And that is when the word came out, and Chesty Pollock said, I'm taking action. And Dexter came running over to Ray and uh, Doug, yelling. And I I thought it was funny because Monroe looked at Evans and said, Whatever he's yelling about, it ain't good. And Evans replied, Never is. But what happens yeah. next when Dexter tells them or asks them to go in to rescue this men? the answer that they gave was, hell
3: yeah.
5: Absolutely. Their mindset was, we put them there, um, and we'll go get them. We'll go get them. You know, uh, Doug and Ray considered well, those men their responsibility. They took them there, and if they couldn't succeed, then they, it was their job to go get them. Now, it was up to Doug to put the
1: contingent together to go rescue this man. So he got 24 boats to go in. Is that number
5: correct? Yeah, it depends on the source that you look at. That number uh, changes a little bit because when you're dealing with um, uh, the early stages of World War II, documentation was not their priority, especially on a, a forward post like that. So the, the, the number, uh, depending on the source, uh, changes, but that, that's about right. You know, as they're right.
1: going in to rescue the guys, the, the Japanese are uh, shelling them with heavy mortar fire. And the closer the sh- to the shore they got, the, better, the, the worse it got. At one point, one of his uh, crafts pulled aside Monroe and yelled that he was too dangerous and suggested they all return
5: back to the base. What was right.
1: Monroe's response?
5: Monroe's response was we're not leaving them there. Uh, and he jabbed his finger into the air, pointed that we're going in. Uh, and there were, um, uh, from our information, and again, there's you just have to connect the dots when you're dealing with this kind of history, was there There were some that decided it was too dangerous to go in and didn't. Uh, but R- Monroe said they were going in, and there were enough of them that followed him um, in order to get the uh, the Marines off that day.
1: Well, as you described the scene as they pull in and the Marines running into the water, dragging the dead, um, they didn't believe that these guys were going to come back for them. They really thought that this was going to be Custer's last stand.
5: Absolutely, because the Marines could see the boats offshore. And, um, you know, there's there's some great video footage of uh, three of the surviving Marines Uh, describing the beach that day and that they could see the boats out there in relative safety. And and, uh, there's some footage of uh, Colonel Mac McLeod saying, you know, they thought nobody in their right mind is going to bring a boat in to get us because of how chaotic the beach was. But he said the Coast Guard came back. Um, And uh, he said uh, as a result of that, uh, that saved a hell of a lot of lives, including my own. Um, so they, well, yes, your point they, that they could see the base no.
1: Up. no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, uh, because no, one of those is. Marines you write about, Gunnery Sergeant John Baislione, uh he was one of the ones. And it was at that point that Monroe jumped into another gunner's, because one of the ships had been disabled. And he went and grabbed the gun turret and was providing cover.
5: Yes. And, and one of the Marines that were rescued that day, and, and this is so significant when it comes to military history, is that one of the Marines that was rescued that day was John Bassalone. And John Bassalone, 28 days later, would earn the Medal of Honor in his own right for the Battle of Henderson Field. So when you look at the significance of what one person does, what if Doug Monroe doesn't do what he does? Then John Bassalone is not around to do what he does 28 days later. And the, the, the document, and again, there's no document out there that says that Doug Monroe saved John Bassalone's life. You just have to connect the dots. That of the Marines sent over that day, John, John Bass alone was not killed in action. And if he wasn't killed in action and he was part of the Marines that was dropped off and subsequently rescued, if he wasn't killed in action that day, then he was one of the Marines pulled off. And that is the first instance in modern American military history where one Medal of Honor recipient saves the life of another Medal of Honor recipient. That would not happen again until Tommy Morris and Michael Thornton in Vietnam. That is how significant That's um, Doug Monroe's actions were that day. Well, you know, and they're course, pulling the out. they got, got all the Marines done. on board.
1: All the Marines are safe on board. They're pulling away, and one of the boats gets disabled, and it's tangled up in the corals. And rather than just leaving him, the Marine in the water trying to rock the boat off the coral, Doug comes over again to the rescue.
5: Yes, and and pulls them off, and and, and Doug waits until he knows now that all of his boats are away before he starts to leave. He is the the coxswain of the boat, so he is looking forward. Ray Evans is at the – and I'm not a a Navy guy (laughs) – So he's in the the forward part of the boat looking back, and he could see um, water spouts coming across the water and yelled for Doug to get down. But Doug couldn't hear him over the engine noise. And as they were reaching the the outer limits of the uh, range of fire for the Japanese weapons, one round, one round, hit Douglas Monroe in the head and um, he was killed, essentially, instantly.
1: Well, you know, I, I didn't say that as as they were pulling the Marines into the boat, because he, Doug saw that they were taking a lot of fire, he placed his boat between the final fleeing Marines so they can get on the boat, deliberately placing himself again in the line of fire before he turned to pull the guy out of the tow. And then he ended up being killed. But when... He, he went down. Ray Evans cradled him on his lap. And his yeah. final last words really kill me. His final last words. you got to tell about that.
5: Uh, his, his final words were, Doug's overriding concern was the mission. Was the mission, was the mission, was the mission. And his final words were, did they get off? Uh, referring to the Marines. And Ray... Uh, tells the story that he doesn't even think Doug heard him uh, answer.
2: Gary, wasn't, ahead, there, uh, wasn't there a Canadian connection with Doug and his family? Was he not born in Canada?
5: Yes, he was born in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: We got to go to another part of the story in the book, because as Doug is going into this action his mom back home starts getting antsy and as the fighting increases, she ends up running to church and then Doug dies at 1800 hours. And what happens to his mom, Edith, back home?
5: She was, was very anxious, um, sensed that something was going on, which again drove her to church. Um, but, um, after the action was over, um you know she had this calm come over her. Um and um you know be, being a believer in myself she sensed that uh, Doug was now okay. Um but um yeah it, it, it's amazing uh the um, the instinct uh, a mother has for her children. Absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, because you are right. Decades later, Rave reflected on Doug's death, and he stated, I never had a friend like that since, not Mm -hmm. one that close. We were best friends. He died doing what he loved to do and was helping people. That day, he helped hundreds. How many Marines did he rescue?
5: 500. He is credited with the rescue of a battalion of Chesty Puller's men. And that you is know, well it, documented.
1: It's funny because, yeah, uh, because June was writing a letter home to uh, Doug's mom, Edith, and yes. his, his secretary, the, whoever it was that was working with him, I out what the rank was. Uh, he wrote yeah, this he letter a, he and had, a gave Marine it to the yeoman. guy to yeah. type up. Uh, and the Marine yeoman typed it up. And Dexter didn't know that that was not the only copy, was it?
5: That's, that's correct. The, um, again, you don't have copying machines, uh, but uh, it was a Marine yeoman, and the, um, the, the only way – I mean, when you trace things back, how things happened, there was no formal recommendation because subsequently Commander Sheehan asked Admiral Dexter when he had met him at the 50th anniversary, how in the world – At a forward operating base, did you have the right form to recommend my uncle for the Medal of Honor? And Admiral Dexter told him, all I ever did was write that letter to your grandmother. All he had ever done. So when you look at, from a a bird's eye view, what had to have happened, then um, it had to have happened that the yeoman Sent a copy um, or got a copy of Admiral Dexter's letter to the Marine Corps. And there is, uh, although Doug Monroe's Medal of Honor file no longer exists, both the Marine Corps can't find it, the Coast Guard can't find it, we couldn't find it, it doesn't exist. Is that Chesty Puller is credited with forwarding that letter, recommending to General Vandegrift, um, for Douglas Monroe's Medal of Honor. So it wasn't the Coast Guard that recommended Douglas Monroe for his Medal of Honor. It was the Marine Corps. And as a result,
3: right.
5: you, you know Doug, what Monroe, got... Go Doug Monroe. Go ahead, Doug Monroe. Oh, and, and Doug Monroe is the only non-Marine whose portrait hangs in the National Museum of the Marine Corps' uh, Hall of Heroes.
2: Wall the heroes, yeah. Gold yep. That is an
1: amazing, court. amazing story.
2: Yeah, and they know a hero all... when they see one. Go ahead, Kat. Get...
5: Yeah. And, and if that was all there was to the Doug Monroe story, it's absolutely incredible. But when you consider what Edith Monroe did after her son's death, and then the legacy services that – um, Mike Cooley performs. It is just, it, it's just an absolutely incredible story. I, I couldn't believe it, um, that nothing had been written on it when I started the research.
1: Well, I wanted to absolutely. talk about Edith Monroe, uh, because she was, a, she was an amazing, amazing woman. She took Doug's death very, very hard, but she did something that you wouldn't expect,
5: Correct. Absolutely. Doug had enlisted for six years. He only served three, and she decided when she heard that back then when the Coast Guard was going to uh, initiate the um, the women's Coast Guard, she decided to enlist. But by this time, she is a gold star, medal of honor mother. There was no way the Coast Guard was going to let her enlist. So they offered her uh, a direct commission at the rank of Lieutenant Junior Grade. She accepted. So on May 27, 1943, in the morning, she receives her son's posthumous Medal of Honor. She is taken from the White House to the War Department where she raises her right hand and takes the uh, oath of enlistment and serves for three years to uh, to fulfill her son's enlistment commitment. Uh, a she, woman she way ahead of her She served all the country. Yes, and absolutely. And her served age at Served for three that years. Time. I'm sorry? But considering I, I her age that. also at that time. Her Oh, age. absolutely. When she... And, and, and let me back up for one second. When she accepted the commission... On one condition, that she be allowed to attend basic training like everyone else. So at the age of 48, she enters basic training with women less than half her age and finishes at the top of her class.
2: Amazing. Amazing
1: story, an amazing woman. And she served in various positions. They They do have to make a movie, you know, because you follow up with what happens afterwards and how she was one of the ones guest speakers uh, talking about her son, talking about the Coast Guard in the war. She did a lot
5: for the war effort. Oh, absolutely. After she retired from the Coast Guard, she spent the next 30 years of her life traveling the country, speaking on behalf of the Coast Guard the war effort, um, the military, and her son's uh, legacy. Her last public event was the 50th anniversary in Winter Haven, Florida. Um, uh, and it, it, it's just a phenomenal story. And, and if we have time, I'd like to get into Mike Cooley. Um, because you're talking about Cle Washington. It's only a town of around 2,500 people. So you would think that everybody would know everything that was going on. But after, um, after the war, and Doug Monroe has received his Medal of Honor, they started repatriating a lot of the remains of our fallen. And the War Department contacted Edith and asked, one, do you want your son repatriated? She said yes. Yes. They offered them Arlington National Cemetery because by that time he had received his Medal of Honor. Uh, She declined that and wanted him brought home. So he arrives home and is repatriated on March the 6th of 1948. Now let's go back to his boyhood friend, Mike Cooley, who served in Europe. Yes. Following the war, in the post-war economic boom, Mike Cooley spends about eight to ten years traveling the country doing construction work and returns to Cleellum in nineteen fifty eight. Ten years after Doug has been repatriated, he finds out that his boyhood friend, one was killed in action, two received the Medal of Honor, and three is buried in the local cemetery. So he walks from his small house the three miles from his house to the cemetery sees that there is an old rusted flagpole and a tattered faded American flag flying from it well of course um, uh, chief you know that, that that will never do so he strikes the colors walks back into town goes to the local BFW and gets another flag goes home The next morning at dawn, he is up, walks three miles, raises the colors, renders honors to his friend, and walks back home. But because his gravesite is 1,200 feet from the road, there's no electricity, so there's no light on that flag. So at dusk, he walks from his home the three miles to the cemetery, strikes the colors renders honors to his friend, walks back home. The next day, he repeats the same thing and does that every day, regardless of the weather or his health. He does that every day for the next 40 years. Now, doing the math, Mike Cooley, during those 40 years, walked 176,000 miles.
2: Wow. And he wasn't getting any younger.
5: No. At the age of 76, he calls the Coast Guard office in Seattle and says, is there any way that you guys can put a light on Doug Monroe's grave because after I'm gone, I don't think anybody's going to do it. And that started a whole plethora of actions that resulted in uh, Douglas Monroe's grave site being a Washington State uh, historical site. And if you ever have the opportunity to go there, what this small town has done to honor not only Doug Monroe, but all of the area's war dead is second to none. Um, it's just absolutely incredible. And when Mike Cooley was asked shortly before he died, why did you do it? Why did you do that all these years? And in his high-pitched voice, he said, well, you know, when you do something nice for someone, it makes you feel good. And he said, <laughs> and besides, he had done the same thing for me. Well, you
1: know,
2: now that sounds mean, like, a, that sounds like an Oscar winning award, award movie there. I'm telling yes, you, it it's does. very inspiring. Absolutely. Moving. But what
1: what's even worse is that no one really knew he was doing this this whole entire time. Not even Absolutely. his own daughter, because he caught pneumonia. And he caught yes. pneumonia, and for three days he had her drive <laughs> pneumonia to raise and strike the flag for three days. She. Puts it out of his mind and doesn't
5: know he ever really did this every day.
1: Only after right. he
5: passed did she know. That that's correct because when we when we talked to Joe Ellen, uh, she said, "You know, Dad went to the cemetery every day, but we just thought that was something Dad did. They had no idea what he was doing, and neither did the Monroe family. No. They had no idea."
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely.
5: And when they finally. No, Please and w- when
1: he finally did make that call to the Coast Guard, what they did in order to build the memorial was outstanding. You know, when you tell them you can't do something, the military finds a way to do it, right?
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and Chief, you know that in any branch of the military, when something needs to get done, they give it to the chiefs and they find a way of getting it done.
2: And that, that's spirit. exactly
5: what happened here.
2: Kenton spirit.
1: Suddenly there was electricity that was dug in. They had a brand new flagpole, a new monument plaque, everything. And there was also something else they did. There was a wall they put up.
5: Yes. Yep. Uh, a wall of uh, all of the uh, war dead from all of the wars um, from uh, from Elam there. it is. It is a... It is a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, military tribute to their veterans out there. And there's a big concrete pad where the uh, ceremony each year is held. uh, And also, of course, other military, um, you know, 4th of July service. There's a um, Memorial Day, uh, Veterans Day services. All of those are held out there, all conducted and coordinated by the small VFW chapter in Cle Washington, phenomenal, just phenomenal.
2: See, this is the kind of um, thing that young kids should hear about. You know, instead of trying to keep up with the Kardashians or what Justin Bieber is doing, you know,
3: we got real people,
2: <laughs> real heroes. You know, and they don't they don't hear about them. All they hear is um, a lot of negativism about this country.
5: Well, exactly, and 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 the reason that I. I we designed the cover the way we did, uh, with Doug's picture prominent. Is that we wanted to be able to reach young people? So when they looked at that, they they could see that that uh, kid on the front as that could be their older brother. So we we, we you know, deliberately cut- try to to be able to connect uh, with the younger generation, um, because we we have. Students growing up today that, you know, can't read cursive writing. Forty-five um, percent uh, of, um, of uh, the younger generation of millennials believe that uh, capitalism is, is not the economic system that the United States should have. Um, uh, barely 10 to 11 percent can pass a, uh, the citizenship test that we require immigrants to pass before they can come in. It's just I, I, we're on a very, very tenuous path, and um, it, it's incumbent upon those of us that, um, that are patriots uh, to turn it around because our history well, you know, it, is I, replete of individuals that stand up and say, you know what, we're not doing this.
1: Well, you know, it's such a fantastic story because the number of people that Ray Evans, Mike Cooley, Doug Monroe, Eve Monroe touched, the lives they affected, and the future generations that are here now because of their action is unbelievable. It probably today mounts in the thousands. Thousands of people who probably would never have been born. Thousands of things that probably would never have happened. And not only that, right after Doug's death, Going through his things and found his harmonica. They went to donate the harmonica to a service member. And that started a whole nother drive of affecting a whole nother set of military serving overseas that didn't have musical yeah. instruments with them. Cause you're alone in that foxhole or you're alone in that duty station and you want to play the guitar, you know, just for time or play the harmonica or even pianos were being donated. How many soldiers' mor- morales have been uplifted because of the actions that started with doug Monroe 's parents, with the actions that started with doug monroe this this family and this group of people have affected so many people, and their their selfless giving is what
5: we need to teach today's kids A- absolutely, and as great as Doug Monroe's story is, it's not unique. There are probably hundreds and thousands. Of, of of similar stories of people who did what they had to do when they had to do it and received no recognition at all because they didn't do it for that.
3: No, and, and, and you know, the, I'm glad
1: Colin uh, Eaton turned turn me on to you because it is a fantastic story that has to be told.
5: Well, and and one of the things that I have the the honor and the privilege to do is to serve as an academic director at the Freedoms Foundation at Valley Forge in Pennsylvania. And every summer for the last six years, uh, they've been conducting graduate uh, programs for teachers. And the last two years, we've done one on, done an entire week on World War II, where I have the, uh, again, the honor and the privilege of, of being able to present Doug Monroe's story But we also work closely with the Medal of Honor Foundation, uh, incorporating their character development program. And we have found that if you talk to students, and there's 30 students in your class, you reach 30 students. But if you have teachers, if you can teach teachers over their career, they will impact thousands. So the the efforts of the Freedoms Foundation, through their graduate teacher program, um, is going to affect uh, millions of people. And um, this year we have Woody Williams uh, as the Medal of Honor recipient coming in. If you're not familiar with Woody, he is the only living Medal of Honor recipient from the Battle of Iwo Jima. And he has been there for the last two years. And it, he he is, he is phenomenal. He has more energy in his early 90s than uh, than I have in my 60s. He is he is a phenomenal individual. So you know, as a result of of of, of the work put in in, in both Sea of Honor and Guardian of the Guadalupe um, I've been able to um, to reach people through the Freedom's Foundation and other groups like them. Uh, there are organizations out there doing yeoman work uh, on behalf of American values and honoring um, the service and the sacrifice uh, of, of all of those that served. Um, you know, D- Doug Monroe is is, is well, one of 16 million people that served in World War II. All of their stories are absolutely incredible and as great as their military service was, I think – All of those that came back, that the work and the service they provided, having freed Europe and rid um, the planet of um, Hitler and um, um, the imperial uh, Japanese, um, I think their service as civilians coming back and building the world's most powerful economic engine is as significant, if not more so, than their military service. You know, it's such a – so much that we have to teach our
1: young. You know, I would ask you, you know, probably talk to you later on offline, if you can get someone to contact me from the Freedom Foundation and get them to come on the show and talk about these courses for teachers and students. I'd love to learn more about that.
5: Uh, You're talking to a guy that can do that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's part of my (laughs) job is promoting – the Freedoms Foundation, um, but I mean, I can certainly put you in touch with someone else, but they'll tell you the same thing I'm, I can tell you. Um, it, it, it's, it's a phenomenal program. I've okay. been involved uh, with their program five out of the last six years um, as an academic director. Uh, prior. The one year I served as, uh, as one of their faculty members. So I've, I've been fortunate enough to be there and watch the program evolve. From the first class of 26 teachers the very first year. This year, we will train 440 teachers from all across wow. the country. Wow. They do, they do. They do,
1: you, do. you know, I had, well, I, I had been up on New Yorktown. I was up there and I met Herman Kane, Kane up there. And when we took a break, I walked into the Medal of Honor recipient. Uh, display they had there and as I was walking through we as you know we do a dedication on the show each and every show and I've done medal of honor winners um I shouldn't say winners awardees and a father and his son came in and they're looking at the the displays and everything and I walked up and I'm reading the display and I says well this doesn't tell you the whole story so I go into the story of this recipient and as they walk over and I couldn't believe how many of the stories I already knew as I'm going through it and uh, it amazed the father and son, the actual stories that go behind. Because the little plaques give you just a couple of lines to say on this date, right. blah, blah, blah. But they don't tell you everything about what uh, what went on. Like Sergeant Carney in Civil War carrying the American flag across the the, the river, things yes. like that. There's so many out there that they yep. don't know about. And I'm glad you do this hard work for us.
3: Well.
5: I, I, I had a similar experience there on the, on the Yorktown. You know, I, I we get down to the Charleston area about five times a year, and uh, I always make it a point to go through uh, the museum, even though because every every month they change out who they're um, who they're recognizing, um, which recipients they're recognizing. I was going through there one day, and I happened to see the you know one of the uh, World War II ones that they were featuring or highlighting was Douglas Monroe. And I just was can't kind of stand there and i and, and watching and, and there were some people came through and um, there was a couple um, um, with a, a young child and he was trying to explain as best he could, you know, what was going on. Uh, so I, I kind of listened to him struggle a little bit and I said, um, um, here, I, I said, maybe I can answer some questions for you. And he said, well, I'm having trouble explaining this. So I was able to um, to help him out a little bit. And then um, he says, well, how do you know so much about this Douglas Monroe? So then you get the opportunity to say, well, I had the honor and the privilege of, of writing his biography. And, and just to watch their face and then to watch them start, you know, hitting you with question after question after question, to me, I just look at it as an op- another opportunity to teach. Um, and, you know, I did uh, something similar with uh, Michael Murphy's story when he was a featured uh, recipient. Um, it, 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 it's, it's, to me, um, I, I never served in uniform. Uh, I, I guess I uh, um, consider this my, my give back to um, all of the um, the people that made it possible for me to be able to to do what it is that I do and um, you know when i started I always had a a passion for history and government and I never knew why until uh, I started doing my research on ancestry dot com and found out that I am an eleventh generation descendant of John adams so now when I Thanks. wonder where my Passion for uh, America comes from. Uh, I, I, I realize it's in my DNA. <laughs> well, if
1: you got great DNA. So, Gary, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, Gary Williams, the author of the book Guardian of Guadalcanal, to let you know that a lot of people listen to the show and the podcast all. Click on the dis- description, and it'll take them directly to the book. It'll also take them to your sealofhonor.com website so people can buy the book, learn more about you. And I'm going to get in touch with you about you coming back on and talking about the Freedom Foundation. I think that's also a very, very important topic here
5: today. I want to thank, thank you. Absolutely. Thank
1: you so care, much.
2: Gary.
5: Thank you very much. All right.
2: My pleasure.
5: And God bless.
3: All right. Thank you.
1: Uh, Gary yep. Williams, check out his book, uh, Guardian of Guadalcanal. And now we've got a very dear friend calling in. He's carpooling his little girls around the neighborhood. So I'm hoping we get good reception. Let's bring on Jim Simpson, the author of The Red-Green uh, the Red Green Axis, um, Refugee Immigration and the Agenda to Erase America. Not only that, he's a uh, – re- uh, oh, God, Jim, I'm having a breakdown. Brig- big brain fart here <laughs> you're up on daily caller and a ton of other places people can read your article uh and you do fantastic work in bringing the message to the people good afternoon jim how are you today
6: hey and great to be back with you
2: hey jim
1: yeah normally when you normally when you talk to me i got a scotch in my hand but there's no scotch in my hand today
6: <laughs> oh man well i was a scotch drinker at one time even, what do you drink
1: uh, yeah, we've had that conversation.
6: <laughs> Have we? Yeah. Um, I don't remember.
3: <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so what's up? Strong Scott?
1: <laughs> Man, there's so much to talk about. You know, we've got a whole new. Congress in there, and it looks like everything you projected in your book, the red-green axis, is really coming to fruition, especially when you have yeah. someone like Ilian Omar, and she's the poster child. Yeah. You wrote an article about it, and oh my goodness, it was a fantastic article. Things that go on about this woman, and I don't think she should even be in Congress. I don't think she's even eligible to be in Congress.
6: She's a security risk. She's an immigration fraud. Uh, in in the in in committing her immigration fraud, she probably committed about a dozen other crimes, all kinds of financial fraud, document fraud, um, <clears throat> marriage fraud. Uh, I mean, she could be indicted, tried, and prosecuted for the things that she's done. Uh, of course, nobody on the Democratic Party is interested in even talking, just talking about that, let alone doing anything about it. And the Republican Party seems similarly disinclined. So it's really kind of disgraceful, honestly. Uh, Furthermore, she's a national security risk. She has a lot of connections back to Somalia, now um, run by a guy who was elected in the most fraudulent uh, election in Somali history And if you know anything about Somalia That is saying something And um, he's also uh, Allegedly to Al-Shabaab So the things that she Learns on the um, Foreign Affairs Committee Where she's sits now Could easily be Transferred to The terrorist network in the Middle East and uh, so she's a national security risk. She, she has no business being in Congress, and definitely no business being on the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee.
1: You know, there's a question in the chat room from our Canadian friend. Uh, Kell is on Global Patriot Radio, and she's asking, does she hold a dual citizenship? That's a good question, because she came from Somalia to America, became a citizen. Did she still retain her Somali citizenship?
6: That's a good question. She came as a refugee, so I honestly don't know what her status was in Somalia. You know, it was a, uh, basically a failed state. So, I mean, I would assume that she'd be a Somali citizen, but, I mean, how do you be a citizen of a country that doesn't have a government? You know what I mean? It's, I, I don't honestly know that the answer to that question.
1: Well, it's a good one to ask, especially since she's on yeah, the Foreign Affairs Committee. You know, it's funny. Because you you talked about you know her connection to the Somali president that was recently elected, and she publicly supported him after his election, and then the Prime Minister also being elected under curious circumstances, and then suddenly right. her brother-in-law, Mohammed um, <clears throat> Aduhi Mohammed, a former New York transportation employee. Suddenly, now getting well, a the job in Somalia, the, working for. The,
6: yeah, no, that's the president. Oh. You're getting oh, the that's names the confused, but. All right, I'm on the wrong line. But yeah, that's the president, and then the um, the prime minister was. Uh, she said great things about the president two days after he was elected, and also mentioned the name of the prime minister, who's a guy with shady dealings. Uh, he was under investigation for financial fraud. He ran a Russian-owned oil business in Somalia, and uh, and he was under investigation for that. He was also suspected of having ties to al-Shabaab, and uh, she mentioned him very positively in her congratulations speech to Mohammed, and two days after that, the... Uh, the Somali legislature uh, elected him prime minister, and then almost immediately after that, her brother-in-law became the prime minister's executive secretary. And so there was definitely a quid pro quo there, or it sure looks like it anyway. And, uh, and so through her brother-in-law, she has a direct connection to the top leadership of the party And, uh, uh, you know, she accuses Jewish Americans of having dual loyalties, where where it seems pretty clear she has dual loyalties, if not loyalty to Somalia over and above her uh, loyalty to the United States, which she doesn't seem to uh, express any loyalty to.
1: Now, you, you mentioned her two marriages, which I found curious. Uh, one of them to her brother, uh, and mm-hmm. that was another one to uh, Ahmed Hersey, which she said was a common-law spouse. And supposedly she broke off that relationship when she married yeah. her brother. And that was, that was right. fraud in itself because that was just to get her brother over here. Yet she remained, remained yeah. married to him for a few years, yet no one could find the divorce papers. And then she right. claims she have well, any contact with Percy. Go ahead.
6: Yeah, no, she she claimed she uh, divorced him in the Islamic tradition, uh, whatever that is, um, in 2011, and then she claimed she hadn't seen him ever since there. Since then, but she communicated with him regularly. On social media and when that was revealed she very quickly uh, deleted those social media posts but we also found that she had flown to Great Britain where her brother was living and visited him in 2015 so was she was lying when she said she had no uh, no contact with him after 2011 and then she uh, supposedly remarried her common law husband or the one that had been married informally in the Muslim tradition also, whatever that means. And um, But it turns out that her husband, her first husband, Percy, and she and her brother, Ilan, had all been living at the same house when she and her brother were attending Uh, North Dakota University So the whole thing's a fraud And then it gets even worse than that Because we discover that her brother The one she married Who she claims isn't her brother And she knows nobody uh, She claims he's not a brother uh, Lived with her father uh, Throughout his childhood And graduated from Minneapolis High School So the whole thing Is just a convoluted Mess of Lies. And yet, you spend
1: how many millions of dollars? <laughs> spend how many million dollars on this Mueller investigation for Russian collusion? Oh, yeah. And yet, no oh, one, yeah.
6: wants, 20 no one million. wants to pick up. Yeah, Jeez. nobody wants, nobody's really yeah, interested then, in the rule of law.
1: Not at all. And then, of course, yeah, the House yeah. comes across with this weak resolution to condemn hate speech. Uh, when it won't call her out directly for her anti-Semitic comments, she's done over and over again, not only on social networks, but publicly, publicly. And, and no one is calling her out for the anti-Semitism. They, they can't do that. But for Kennedy, they'll strip him of any of his, his committees and publicly put a resolution on the floor.
6: Yeah, well, you know the other thing about that is if you read through that resolution, you find that they re-emphasize uh, right-wing, um, right-wing hate. You know, they raise the um, the event in Charlottesville, Virginia, and decry the right-wing racism, sexism, and every other thing. And so what they really have done is they've flipped the narrative. They include uh, anti-Semitism, but at the very top of the page, they uh, equate it with uh, Islamophobia. So they're they're really making it an equal opportunity um, uh, resolution. And... But the worst part of that is that um, it has a lot of language that is very similar to U.N. Resolution 1618, which was passed, uh, Hillary Clinton signed onto it in 2011, and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation has been pushing – had been pushing for something like Resolution uh, 1618 since the 1990s in order to criminalize uh, blasphemy against Islam. So anybody who says anything bad about Islam uh, is suddenly a criminal. Now, 1618 maintains some flowery language about uh, this won't prevent us from uh, you know exercising our right to free speech but it was the camel's nose in the tent and then there was a 30 uh, mayor compact 30 mayors signed this compact um, to decrying hate speech and hate crimes and so what they've really been trying to do is build momentum to uh, pass Hate speech language Because as you know They have been at a full-throated Effort for the last two years And actually much longer than that To shut us completely Down and silence us Entirely And uh, so <clears throat> What they've done with this Resolution is set The stage for that So this is really Scary stuff um, Yeah, And and it gets even worse because, for example, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I said they already have this in England. They've already arrested numerous people in England. Recently, a mother in front of the children because she called a transgender a he instead of a she.
6: Right, right. And, of course, in Austria, uh, we have the case of Elizabeth Savage Wolf who uh, made a disparaging comment about Immigration and immigrants And she was prosecuted for that As a hate crime And uh, so Germany Austria um, England I don't know where France is with all that Canada All have these uh, Prohibitions On speaking Negatively about any of these People any of these issues Despite the fact that they Right now pose a direct threat to, uh, uh, well, Europeans, Europe's survival, Western Europe's survival, frankly. And uh, and, uh, if we don't get on the ball, America's survival as well. And the UN backed that up with the Migration Compact, which defines, which says that signatory states will enact hate speech laws that... Out that criminalize any speech against immigrants, and once again they say that this is uh, uh, this is non binding, but in when Angela Merkel signed that, she said it is in fact binding, and we are going to criminalize anybody who speaks against migrants, and Germany is ground zero for a migrant invasion that is literally destroying that country. Man, it's, it's, and that's, what the, they that's do the, and the canary in the go, coal mine.
1: Absolutely amazing. Pardon? Yes, it is. It absolutely is. And it, it it's funny because they uh, criticized Ilhan Omar for a recent statement she did when she, she, they were asking about comparing Obama to Trump. And she said it was silly to equate the two – and then she said something that was really significant, which was really bigoted, and no one picked it up because no one knows the Quran and Islam like we do. She said one is human, the other is really not.
3: Mm, she is right.
1: citing the Quran when she says that, and no one picked mm. it up because, oh, she, mm. just, <laughs> she said he's not being a human being. But she, no one understands the significance of what she did. Plus, she said yeah. one is human, meaning Obama, meaning Obama is a Muslim, mm-hmm. right. and Trump, as a Christian, according to the Quran, is not
6: it's, a human. Right. It's a, a dog and a pig, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's it's really quite something, and and the Democrats are just fine with all that. And the Republicans are too afraid to uh, to press the issue aggressively. It's it's really disgraceful.
1: It is. It is. And you know, you write about the Brotherhood in full on infiltration and penetration into Congress, and you look at you know the number of Muslims that we have in there now. She replaced uh, Keith Ellison,
3: Ellison. And yep.
1: He was moderate compared to her. And then you've got Rashida yeah. Talab. and these are radicals, yep. and no one is yep. pulling them out as the radical they are, and their connection to the Muslim Brotherhood. And I've talked about this many times, about the infiltration of the Muslim Brotherhood in Obama's White House, especially with Ibu Patel um, – Because I went to one of these things, love thy Muslim neighbor, and they were calling him a moderate. And uh, as I started to point out, his association with the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, I was kind of like told to shut up. Uh, But Mm -hmm. there are direct connections now in our government. They're teaching our guys in the FBI, they're teaching our guys in the CIA and all the other agencies how to interact with Muslims. And then they're teaching the Muslims to say, well, I'm Muslim, so you can't touch me, blah, 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 exactly how to react. The police did not get to cooperate. We don't understand how much it's infiltrated our government and our society.
6: Yeah. Well, it really started with the switch from – this started in the Bush administration. Unfortunately, uh, the Bush administration created something called Countering Violent Extremism where they took um, Islamic terrorism out of the vernacular entirely and made everything about countering violent extremism and made um, investigation of, of mosques and uh, Muslims connected to the Muslim Brotherhood uh, a civil rights violation. They, uh it, it became you know uh, civil liberties and civil rights uh trump's l- uh law enforcement and national security and <clears throat> of course that isn't the case for anybody else uh, countering violent extremism was designed just like this recent resolution to turn the spotlight away from islam towards quote-unquote, right-wing terrorism. And now we have this guy in uh, New Zealand who shot up a mosque, and Nihad Awad, the leader of CARE, has already come out and say it's due to President Trump and Islamophobia that that happened. But we know, having looked deeper into it, that this guy who did this was actually... A communist radical He was not a right wing If anything he was he was like A, a, a Nazi socialist Which to, for those of us who know Nazis are not right wing They never were They were left wing socialists And they were just fighting With the Soviet Union Because they were trying to figure out Who was going to be top dog Among the socialists in, in Europe Who were going to take over the world And so this guy he's also a green uh you know a, a green environmental radical uh he um his his manifesto very much makes clear that he is not uh a, a right winger of any stripe and because of that the media has rushed to to take down his manifesto and it's very hard to find now. They, they got rid of it pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, you know, It's funny because as you start of... going into it, I had the article I had the article in front of me from the Daily Caller about the manifesto, and I was going to ask you about that. And what people don't mm-hmm. realize is that uh, Muslims worked very closely with the Nazis during World War I and World War II. Oh, well,
3: that's true. And
1: that yeah. was Hitler that used the SS Waffen. Um, that mm-hmm. was put together by the grand of Jerusalem and he admired right. uh, Islam, the tenets of Islam he based a lot of his things right. on Islam so you know there right. is a tight knit which you write about in your book the red green axis which is where you get the red part of the red green, green being the Muslim yep. and red being communist and socialist
6: yep. so there is yep. a
1: direct
2: talk
6: yeah there is And after World War II, you know, the Nazis were pretty much put out of business, and the uh, Soviets took over immediately. Most of the Muslim Brotherhood organizations, most of the terrorist organizations from the Middle East, were nurtured, uh, trained, uh, and supplied with arms by the Soviet Union. So they're really clients of the Soviets. And for a long time, Islamic terrorism was just a proxy for Soviet uh, aggression against the West. Because the Soviets prefer to uh, have plausible deniability and get uh, stand-ins to run to, to do all their fighting for them. That's, that's the way they prefer it. They, they get to see how the enemy fights, and at the same time they don't wind up uh, you know losing a lot of their own people, nor do they ever have to disclose or show uh, the strengths and weaknesses of their own weapon systems, because they just give the terrorists AK-47s and maybe a few rocket launchers.
2: Jim, you uh,
3: mentioned yeah. um, you
2: mentioned you mentioned earlier that the Bush administration made this more of a civil rights um, um, issue yeah. when it came to investigating Muslims, and I was yeah. just wondering, what what role do you believe that ACLU has in hamstring in our agencies when it comes to investigating these um, things such as Muslims?
0: Well,
6: uh, I'll tell you, uh, I don't know specifically how they interacted to create the countering violent extremism uh, narrative, but the ACLU since its founding has been devoted towards Deconstructing our intelligence capabilities, destroying our government's ability to both run things, manage things, and to uh, root out uh, enemy agents in the government. They did this by successive lawsuits that made it harder and harder to keep, for example, communists out of office. Uh, They, uh, wrapping themselves in the flag of civil liberties, uh, they fought uh, the CIA, they fought the FBI all the time about surveilling um, known or suspected domestic enemies. Uh, You know, they challenge all of the law enforcement, local law enforcement, you know, the New York City uh, effort uh, to to surveil mosques uh, Because that's where terrorism is hatched uh, Anybody understands how they work The mosques are the ground zero For all of this terrorist activity Mosques are more like uh, fortresses Than they are really like uh, uh, houses of worship I mean they double as that but it's really um, uh, it's a cover story, you know, because what they're really about is the um, <clears throat> Medina Islam, which is the warrior Islam, which seeks to take over the world. And so the ACLU has been involved in this under the guise of civil liberties, making it harder than they they, they uh, fought against. Um, you know, management, when it tries to fire lousy employees, uh, the unions have stepped in and made it almost impossible to manage um, the bureaucracy. And that's why we have all of these uh, resistors, you know, in the State Department and the various agencies who are deliberately um, subverting the Trump agenda pretty much with impunity because it's virtually impossible to uh, Uh, fire them and that's all due to uh, cumulative efforts over the years by the ACLU, groups like it and by uh, the the, um, uh, employee unions Uh, and it literally makes it impossible to manage these bureaucracies and uh, makes it a hotbed. It's like basically opening the doors to our enemies because what's a better way to to take over a nation and to, and to infiltrate it's, uh, you know, it's leadership, it's, it's bureaucracy. And, uh, uh, you know, you control that, you control the country.
1: Well, Jim, we're down to our last 30 seconds of the show. It has been so much fun having you on there and let me know when you can come back on, because you are always a wealth of knowledge and uh, give my love to uh, everyone. And I hope to see you soon.
6: Thank you. Thank you, folks. Great to be with you.
2: It was great.
1: All right. Thanks. Yes, we're down to our last st- lesson test. I just want to thank everyone that joined us up in the studio, over in the chat rooms, up on Facebook, YouTube, and here on Blog Talk Radio. And we'll be back on Friday. Until then, good night. God bless.